Michael J. Nelson here. This is 372 pages. We'll never get back. I am here with Irene Idsley. Irene, how are you? Irene, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> that's how I pronounce your name. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Thank you. You must have received a lot of emails on that topic. I get it. It's screwed up everywhere I go. I go to Starbucks. They have no idea what to write on my cup. I'm sure that must get very annoying to have to keep correcting people that the common pronunciation that everyone in all humanity has known for mm-hmm. thousands of years is Irene, yep. but to constantly have to tell people, no, I'm sorry, it is Irene. Irene? Irene? Yes. It was pronounced that way within your grandparents' lifetimes. It's not that hard, people. And then uh, the uh, very obvious, uh, Ids, Idsley. 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 Sure. Uh, okay, so that it rhymes. It's right, it's right it. there. Okay. I-D-D-E-S-L-E-I-G-H. Idsley. It does. Oh, we f- we fooled you. It's Connor uh, Lestoka. It's not Irene. It's, it Irene? Slipped right Irene? into the character. I think it's like a, you can picture Johnny Carson saying it. Irene Idsley. <laughs> Uh, we have special guests tonight, of course. Uh, oh. Su- Susan Sarandon will be here. And uh, Irene Idsley. Oh. Oh. What a dish. <laughs> Irene Idsley. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what that means my, either. My, right. my impression is of his, multiple other impressions of him. It's not. Uh, yes. Yeah, of course. It's like uh, the, the first uh, President Bush. No one has any other impression of him other than. <laughs> right. Wouldn't be prudent, you know, that's so. All right, uh, so we're working on... Uh, on the worst novel ever written, according to a bunch of old dead guys. Who Connor has zero respect for. Absolutely you know, not. Writers just... like Mark Twain and <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Not only do I not enjoy their books, I don't respect them as, as artisans, men, uh, people, humans. Uh, let's put it in a scale that everyone can understand. Jock Peterson versus <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien. World Series champion, uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, I don't think he ever was a self-described bad bitch, so... Uh, That's true. It, it Jock Peterson some... makes a lot more money than you, J.R.R. <laughs> Tip the scales towards, uh, towards Jock. Yes. All right, so we're working on this book... Uh, from what year is it? It's the 1800s, 1893, right? 93, 97, yeah, late. I believe it was the late, uh, or maybe 1903, but it's, you know, it's it's that era. It's the oldest book we've ever read, even more than uh, The White Worm, I, I uh, assume. The 1897, I don't remember when The White Worm was done. I think they're contemporaries, though. Um, but, yeah, who yeah, who knows who was president then? One of those old guys, you know, that has, has, has laughable face, facial yeah, hair. I mean, Yep, neck beard or the big chops. Will we ever elect chops. another mutton chopped president? It's not. Uh... That's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> like it's I a hope deal so. breaker, Probably. I mean, I I would hope so. We have a uh, we we have placemats with the presidents yeah, on one side one of and the first ladies mm-hmm. who wasn't always a wife, as you know. Sometimes it could be someone else. Uh, but of course, the, who the, did that? Who was? It would be like a sister-in-law or something. I don't know. There's very few. <laughs> I've there. never heard that. But the point being, of course, what do you immediately do? Who's the hottest? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, uh, it's it's tough, man, on both Grover sides. Cleveland, yeah. It is very tough. Google uh, James Buchanan without beard. I think, no, no, not James Buchanan. Uh, I think Chester A. Arthur without beard. 
Look, people, just go to your computer and uh, every president just type in, start at the beginning at, at Washington and just type in every president without beer <laughs> and no, then come back to this podcast. There's one notable one who who's like, I, I looked him up one time and it was like, damn, he looks like a model, but he's one of those guys with, uh, maybe, oh, it's Rutherford Hayes. He's hot? Uh, yeah. He looks like uh, nice. Let me see uh, who he looks like. One second. He looks like. I thought uh, you were going to be like uh, Google him, and it'll be like uh, you know a hairless bear pictures or whatever. You know? <laughs> yes, like yeah. something oh, from a Guillermo del Toro movie. I mean, <laughs> yes. hot. We're gonna you know we'll, we'll scale yeah, that back well, pretty quickly. Scale, but, you know, sure, he's, he's sure, got sure. some piercing eyes compared to what he ended up looking mm, like. You could you could see him. Eyes. You could see him standing in for like Oscar Isaac or something. Uh, well, we know that Gerald Ford was a model, so I mean, so that there's precedent for it in yeah. the presidents. And uh, you know, for the first ladies, I don't know if Jackie O has a lot of competition there. Yeah, it's pretty tough until you get to Jackie O. There was one picture I saw. I think it was of Calvin Coolidge's wife, where it was like, "All right," and then you know, it was like the official portrait, and it's like, "Well, okay." <laughs> the uh, guy, sure. The guy did some work there. Well, we're talking about first ladies' appearances. This is off to a great start. <laughs> Oh, especially after, as we mentioned, uh, some people uh, prefer to skip past our uh, banter and get <laughs> yes, right into the books, right. which yeah. which only makes us double down on this kind of garbage. First so, lady uh, objectification stops at five forty nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so obviously this is the podcast where we talk about bad books. We're in the middle of Irene Idsley. Irene Idsley. Irene. Irene. Damn it, Ogden. Ogden. Yeah, but, Ogden. but in a who cares type of situation. Written by who? Amanda McKittrick Ross. <sighs> That's the other one. That I, I do not have that at the tip of my tongue, so I congratulate you on you that. Could do a, uh, you could do a, a quiz with her being like first lady or author of Irony Idsley. <laughs> right. You know, first lady from the, uh, turn of the turn of the 20th century or she has a certain look about her. Yes. So this is our second reading. And I will bring us up to date as to what happened in the first third of it, and then right. we can just kind of dive in. Does that make sense? Oh, we have all of our departments. I'm yeah. assuming you're, you're going to fool me with real or fanfic. Hopefully. We have people have written in, Some quality emails, yeah. Good. Okay. So to get into it, I will sum up the first third of the book that we read. Please. Uh, a woman got married. <laughs> and so let's take it from sure. there. Sure. All right. Yeah. Well, will we top that? series of events here in 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 chapters 10 through 14 man i was i have to say i was delighted as to where this went mm -hmm. yep uh, this could not have made me happier I, I was happy with the prose that was kind of fun yeah uh the fact that no plot at all happened was like all right i mean i guess this is gonna crawl along right, right. and then kaboom <laughs> Let's get into it. Yeah, she t she bites off a lot. We sort of we essentially get into a a a heist essentially, um, which is you know it's a it's a hard thing to pull off. I mean, hard to make it interesting on film. Hard harder in in print, and you know she she shoulders that burden not not so ably. I would say she is. Uh, we, I think all of our authors have had a problem with action conveying. Mm -hmm. What is actually happening in real time? Can you picture this? I sure. don't know why. Some don't even try. It, it, you know, Ernest Klein and the Prince fight of Ready Player Two. Right, right. But it, it is a weird thing like uh, big, you know, long fingers or big hands. It's just in every book. Mm -hmm. How come these authors, is that the toughest thing to do as an author is to convey action? 
Yeah, because, I guess. Because, like, really, hack authors can do it without any problem. Like, Stephen King. I'm not Noted hack. A, yeah. I'm not saying he's a hack. But just a, a very pop, a pop author. Let's mm-hmm. call it a pop author. Are able to just, you know. You can tell what's going on in a Stephen King novel. Or yeah, a, certainly in that sewer scene in It. Yeah. So <laughs> I just don't know why these authors can't do it. But she is just terrible at yeah. conveying action. Uh, yeah, because I think, you know, Ernest Klein is just, you know, he knows he knows what we're here for. He's like, yeah, a much more talented person. Uh, and uh, their their team of CGI wizards will figure how to, out how to do this in the movie adaptation. So why would I waste uh, a moment even trying to convey what happened in that prince fight? Yeah, these are this is storyboard stuff. You guys figure right. this out. <laughs> well, uh, all right, so chapter chapter ten is where we start, 10. and yeah, so yeah. where that uh, where that has picked us um, up from is that Sir John has just discovered um, the notes that Oscar Oscar Otwell. The tutor has written to Irene, and that's... a scare a twelve, I believe oh, that's pronounced. <laughs> right, of course, please pronounce it that way in the future. And we uh, got our we got a very very quick settle down moment because Irene, uh, I mean, sorry, Amanda gets a little winky at us because she says, uh, "You know, here is the ring, and there lies the note, the note of him who claims to be not only her tutor but suitor." Blink, blink, blink. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh-huh. That's, that's uh, you know that 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 one probably the the inklings had to had to wipe tears from their eyes at that moment. I'm guessing. Oh, those hilarious guys! I I want to back up and just the opening sentence of chapter ten. I believe contains at least six uh, '90s band names. Okay. <laughs> uh, Corners of horror. God. Uh huh. Shelter themselves, so I think horror shelter would be another. Sure. Within the castles of the queenly. <laughs> yeah, that could be That's... like a, a an Elephant Six uh, uh, album title or something. Yeah, or, I, you know, like an ironic hair band or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Palaces of the Powerful. That was a, a Muse deep cut, I think. Monuments of the Mighty. Wow, all right. Cottages of the Caretaker. Do you remember we watched a documentary about a band called Anvil and all a metal band yeah, oh, and yeah. all, all their uh, all their album titles were alliterative like that. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> that was a good opening. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. She sort of the, the fortune cookies go by the wayside a bit, uh, but we we do get some coming later because that was how all the chapters in the last book started. Yeah. She she kind of picks it up. It's it's a little haphazard. It's hard to tell whether. Am I supposed to just read this first paragraph in isolation, or is yeah. there information that I actually need here? Yeah. For the most part, she she lapses into that, and you can sort of you know it's like our podcast. Someone someone is angrily typing. Story actually starts in paragraph two. Right. <laughs> um, can I issue you uh, your first Sonic challenge? Oh well, yeah, we didn't have one last time. Yeah. Um, this is when um, Sir John is discovering the. The letters, or he's ruminating okay. on, on the letters. <laughs> a lot of ruminating does happen in these books. And so he murmurs this. Oh, boy. So I don't know whether to send it to you or, or whether you can sure. find it in the book. Send it to me if you can. Or just, yeah, I'll, just tell me what to search for. Uh, great heaven. Okay. Uh, search for that. And then, so he murmurs a paragraph okay. here. Do you, do you have <laughs> yep, it? Yep, yeah, I got okay. it. Okay, all right. Give it, give it a shot. A tutor's uh, note is falling from my nervous grasp as I murmur this too for the full, full yes, stage yep, direction. Yes, yep, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
great heaven, am I, am I blind to touch your truth? What happened? Am I last to labor under the fact that my wife loves another? She who only some months since protested her innocence and such strains has caused the most doubtful to stay alarmed here in the ring. And there lies the note, the note of him who claims not to be only her tutor, but suitor. Why did she accept the former or cause the latter to be written? Sir John, I have your sand. What are you murmuring? Oh, you sorry. Murmured. Yeah, you know, bring you it murmured in here. a long time. I, I was. I just sort of got I away from you there. Tea and a sandwich. Is, I, I I start murmuring and I can't stop. I'm like an entire crowd. And are, are you insane? I should probably check with your ancestors <laughs> to see. Watermelon, 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 watermelon. Isn't that what people murmur as a as an actor yeah. in a background? Rutabaga sassafras. Rutabaga sassafras. Yeah, that was good murmuring. Thank you. Uh, but it, he does. It's not all murmuring because he starts. He he curses the name of his wife. He calls her a false and low woman. Oh dear. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's that's like '90s uh, gangster rappers level of disrespect there. That is what uh, you know, Johnny Carson when he introduces uh, Irene. <laughs> we have a uh, false. I'm not even going to try false and she low is, woman. Ed. <laughs> that's right. She's uh, billing herself as. Uh, uh, an impressionist and a false and low woman. <laughs> oh, how low can she go? Uh, for the kids. Yeah. Uh, but here he is described as the, this is a description of Sir John. And I decided I want this. I'm going to ask my children to put this on my tombstone. Great. Being a nobleman of sterling worth and one on whose word the greatest dependence was always manifested. <laughs> Michael J. Nelson. Yeah. 2022. Yes. <laughs> Killed by irate podcast listener. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be that would that would get some um, attention. People were doing uh, crayon rubbings of your grave and stuff like that. That's, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. And uh, beloved wife and children. Oh right, right, right. Uh, but yeah, Oscar sends a, a has sent a rhyming Christmas card to I, uh, Irene that um, I just published the last couplet. I don't know if you have anything more from it. Oh no, please! He, no. It's, it ends, it's pretty good. It ends with him saying that bind your Christmas sprigs of worldly woe to him who you have hated long ago. And this is sort of his uh, his usual suspects mug drop moment where he realizes that. You know, still for really undisclosed reasons, his wife just hates his guts. <laughs> and um, his reaction to it is, I mean, it is hilarious because she, uh, it has been pretty hard to figure out, but she's been very cold to him. Right. And he can't figure out why. And then they had a child and for like a paragraph or so, he was like, she's pretty cool. I like her. <laughs> yes. They were fine. But then immediately it was like, I hate you yeah it's, uh, it's just like a high school relationship or one day you, you know someone wakes up and is like i don't like him anymore like i'm just gonna you, right. know, <laughs> you know why did you break up you know it's tearfully at eighth grade i have no idea uh, well yeah i don't think they do either so right and so his reaction to it is uh, and i would like you to rewrite this this is our favorite uh, sure, yeah. one of our favorite games you mean make it more succinct yes he looked pale and much annoyed, and could only with difficulty refrain from acquainting her of what he had in store to communicate. Okay. Um, it, it really stressed him out not to let on. Okay. <laughs> 
difficulty refrain from acquainting her of what he had in store to communicate. It's as as she says herself later, he has to struggle manfully, not to mention that he knows what she's up to. And it turns his appearance wan and haggard. <laughs> so this is like the height of like Victorian stoicism, right? Uh-huh. My wife She's got these just red hot letters. I mean, I, I'm assuming in this era, right? That this they is were what just they... like burning. I can't wait to bang you, honey. Yeah, it's you a know? peanuts <laughs> Christmas card, but like that's you know, it may as well, yeah, just be be photos. You know, his own like the equivalent of a dick pic back in those days. And his reaction to it is to sort of cross his arms behind his back and go, well, 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 I think he literally lays down on a fainting couch. He he goes into it's like Star Wars. He dies of a broken heart. He like <laughs> they both fall into a uh, like coma. Yeah, right? yeah, it's amazing. A doctor comes and says uh, on inquiry, the doctor pronounced the sudden shock he had nervously sustained to be grave indeed. Which it's like I think that was like. 95% of what doctors did in those days, they would show up and be like, they, they'd come out sort of like dusting off their lapel and be like, yes, her situation is grave indeed. <laughs> right. Bill me, yeah. Uh, but, okay, so before it gets to that, so he, he doesn't confront her, but uh, here's what she suspects at his behavior towards her. Okay. His, his manful, first, struggles, manful yes. struggles. Struggles. At first, she was inclined to fear his approach, but gradually, I don't know how long that is, she felt convinced he was slightly affected with a mild form of insanity (laughs) and making minute inquiries from the oldest inhabitants in the neighborhood and adjoining village as to the accuracy of her fears, she was informed that such never existed amongst his ancestors so far as they knew or heard. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, where so where, she's like, where are you going, oh, honey? <laughs> yes, look, uh, I'm cheating on my husband. He's acting sort of icy. I've got a bunch of letters up in my drawer. Did you see them? Nah, probably not. I'm gonna go ask around if he's insane. Yeah, off to the adjoining village. <laughs> hey, a uh, guy who runs the ham shop. Uh, you know my uh, my husband. Yeah, well, his uh, I, I know his relatives. Yeah, were they well? Were they were they crazy? <laughs> I mean, they they bought ham every month. I, I don't know. Huh, every month. I, don't I guess think that so. could be considered a you know excessive amount of ham buying. All right, that things are starting to add up here. Uh, no wonder he looks wan and haggard. He's, he hasn't had any ham. But also, at what point doesn't he just go? All right, here's another sentence. Uh, ah, no matter in what light he viewed her conduct, now he was brought to loathe her very mm-hmm. look. <laughs> And was fully determined to shut her in from the gaze of an outside world or the cunning tricks of a trifling tutor. <laughs> the the alternative, instead of doing, you know, uh, shutting her away from the gaze of the outside world, is to go, hey, honey, I, I saw those letters from that tutor. Yeah. And her response could be, that guy? That guy's a nut. I, I, <laughs> I threw him in my drawer because they're so weird. Right, yeah. I mean, that's a possibility, right? Yeah, I mean, or, just, you know, essentially he does do this later, but like, you know, hey, knock it off. Um, there's absolutely nothing you can do about this because it's 1897, so um, right. stop having that guy write to you. Uh, so anyway, yes, so he is going to lock her away from... Um, 
yeah, uh, the, the outside, the gaze of the outside world. Yeah, and fortunately, he's got a a place already prepared for this, which is really nice. As I think it was alluded to very early on, that he has all these locked rooms. And yes. I, I think in the in the beginning, the the first chapter or two, it mentioned that they were of the the nicest places in the house, which we didn't understand how anyone would know that since they were locked and you couldn't look at them. But this one is not so nice. It's a uh, I mean, how would you describe it? It's it's his it's a murder room or a insanity room. I yeah, it's a it's a saw murder room. Um, it it has coconut carpeting, you know, which I think are those doormats, right? The like those fuzzy scrapey doormats. Oh, okay. Sure, great. That's great. So, so that's over the whole room. So <laughs> completely uncomfortable. Already and insane. That, yeah, and that is streaked with gore. Parts of it uh, were grim with gore and weren't <laughs> past recognition. Like. I mean, you're, you, he's not the top lord in the land, but I think he's at least got like carpet replacing money once it, you know, any amount of gore is really too much. Right. So he's, he's not only got the saw murder room basement, uh, you know, uh, jail, he has a dungeoness at who's <laughs> already working for him. It's like, hey, you know, normally you, you bring me my ham sandwiches. I get them from the adjoining village. Sure. But I'd, I'd like you to imprison my wife <laughs> yeah. and it, check on her every two hours. Is that going to be? No, that's fully within my duties. That's uh, Rachel, the housekeeper. Who, uh, yes. who who is was men- Rachel Hyde was mentioned once before. <laughs> nice. Good. I was, there's other things where I had to go back and check because we do get full names of these characters. Yes. So he calls it the room of Mycor, the room of death. It defies escape or secretion. You know, and just saying it defies escape is probably sufficient there. Like, <laughs> yes. But Houdini could probably show up and secrete in it. But he, sure. we get the rundown of, of who the former inhabitants have been. So this is like learning who, you know, the, the people who, like, the guy who sat at your desk in the office before you got there. Um, uh, the lady who first shared its mist was a born imbecile, the eldest daughter of my great-great-grandfather, Sir Sidney Dunfern. So right here, like, all the t- neighboring townspeople, the ham guy said, he, no, there was no history of insanity, but this seems like a pretty big red flag. I mean, this is born imbecile. This is, this is bananas. <laughs> she and was, so, what happens to this? She uh, was nursed and tenderly cared for within these walls for a period of thirty-six years. Sure. And through the instantaneous insanity of her ward, <laughs> was marked a victim for his murderous hand. It had been related that during midnight, when she was fast asleep, he, the ward, drew from that drawer here. Sir John pointed to the wardrobe, a weapon of warlike design, and severed her head from her body, causing instant death. <laughs> so let's unpack that. This is the, uh, uh, I when I was reading this, because I did my reading yesterday, uh-huh. I think I sent you 50 it was, instant messages on this. Like, yeah. what in the name, am I reading something wrong? <laughs> it's The born imbecile. Yep. Uh, term back then would have, you know, just someone obviously had uh, severe mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a ward <laughs> who killed her with a from a drawer. He pulled something that severed her head, which we, doesn't say what it is. So she was locked in the room for thirty six years. Uh, was, how long was the ward in there with her? Because when did she get the ward? What, who who is taking care of her? Who she one day says, "I would like to get a ward." <laughs> There's a guy who <laughs> his <laughs> name is his name is Hector Hector Wade. 
uh, the poor guy's got nobody. I'd like to take him in. Well, you can't do that. You're crazy. This is, you know, you said yesterday that you wanted, uh, you know, a dragon sandwich. So that's not, I mean, we, we... Yes, but I don't think you understand that I have coconut carpeting here. I think that that overrides anything you will say. And we've Give all, me that ward. we've all questioned that decision to install it. It was... You know, it's very uncomfortable. It's you very comfortable, and it was down. shockingly expensive for for how much you wanted to put in. It was more than a a plush, uh, sensible carpet. Look, just for the, and I'm only asking. I don't. It's never going to come up. Does it soak up the gore? That's what I just would like to know. Well, they did. That was sort of like one of the top billed advertising points on it, which there, struck there us as weird too. But <laughs> but we cannot. There's no. There's no in good conscience, cannot go to the orphanage and, and, and give you a child to take care of in this room. We're not even sure if there's a bathroom what? in this room. It's never Why? specified. Because you're insane. You're an imbecile. Oh, oh. You know what I had to say to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so poor Hector, uh, I mean, understandably got tired of the situation and, and killed her. I don't know what happened to him. I Hector Wade's... <laughs> Yeah, Hector Wade's fate is not mentioned. I mean, it's a whole book right here in this paragraph. Um, But but so here's what Hector does. So the 36 year old, may she rest in peace, uh, imbecile. I'm using their term. (laughs) uh, He uh, Sir Sidney, whose eldest daughter it was. So this is the uh, Sir John's great great grandfather. Okay, he's knocking on the door like, hey, what's going on? With my uh, my murder room here, my mycor room, <laughs> which I looked up. There's yeah, no that ref. That's a fungus or something. I don't know what. Wow, even worse. Yeah. Uh, the murderer. This is Sir John. Quote: The murderer had her stretched on the floor, and every article capable of being removed piled upon her corpse. Oh, come on now, Ward. <laughs> uh, Hector. Hector, this is why we hesitated <laughs> to make you the ward of a 36-year-old imbecile because of behavior like this. Yeah, you've really let us down here. I mean, what is every article capable of being removed mean? I mean, he... or isn't at, at some level every article on the planet capable of being removed <laughs> from somewhere and put somewhere else? I mean, she's an imbecile. She could have like attached her uh, her right pant leg with super glue or something. That's <laughs> Uh, so that's bananas, but uh, Sir Sidney... sewing my shower cap to my head. <laughs> Why did you take I, me in? I'm not I making Hector gone, watch. I like I the idea. gone with like a nice Dickensian family with lots of money and <laughs> yeah, cheerful people. Batman famously has a ward, right? Robin is his True, ward. Yes, so like he, he ward. Bruce Wayne shows up and like he's like, uh, Hector or Dick Grayson here? And Hector's like, me, me, me. He's like, well, I don't know. This guy looks like he could use it more. Picks him. He gets to be Robin. This guy yes. <laughs> cut to him cutting off someone's every article of clothing 36 years later as gore seeps into the carpet. Why are you jealous? You're both staying in stately manners. I mean, come <laughs> True, on. yes. So the next inhabitant that, that was doomed to share the room's dull delight was Kathleen, who he describes, and I think the, the most succinct and easiest way possible, the wife of my beloved grandfather. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so, I mean, is there any situation where that's not his grandmother? I guess he could have been, you know, remarried or something, but that's never that's never hinted at. Uh, she must have gone like you're. You're never going to call me grandmother. Right. Is that is that really going to happen here? Shut up, Kathleen. <laughs> God. So uh, what happened to her? Uh, what happened to her? Jeez, what did I? I well, didn't take a I'll tell you. 
I'm so sorry to relate, proved more an accomplice than the honored wife of him who added so much to the welfare of those who now benefit by his great economy. God. The hand of death visited her here, likewise, with its separating touch. <laughs> so, again, this is like six paragraphs where he walks into the room with the uh, housekeeper and rattles all this stuff off, mm -hmm. which I assume at this point she is shaking her Filing watch. Filing her nails, yeah. And going, I, I didn't ask anything, but okay, I'll, I'll have a seat on the... Uh, coconut uh, carpeting and uh, not on that part of it <laughs> grim with gore grim i'm gonna bring tea here like twice a day that is all i need to know about this place but frankly i'd prefer to know less about it because it just makes me less complicit not to be involved in what's going on here uh the final inhabitant of the room yeah, mr R rodney rupert uh, we have we have a couple of guests tonight we have rodney rupert is here <laughs> we have all rodney lineup we have rodney allen rippy it says right here that he fell from the path of virtue and trod the field of vice. So uh, <laughs> whoa, that should be. Whoa. Yeah, you know, you know a bit about vice, don't you? Don't you, Ed? Oh yes, sir. <laughs> Rodney uh, Rupert, yeah, does not. Uh, it was a distant relative of his mother. So that's that. You're just imprisoning distant relatives up here at this point in time. His parents are just like, hey, I know it's been a while. I hate to show up and just ask you for a favor, but. Uh, you know, Rodney's, he's not doing so well. Can you, you mind, you mind tossing him in the coconut room? So then Rodney is there and he brings him up. You know, of course they say nothing about it. And he goes to the door of the room and he's like, Oh, whoa, <laughs> this is one of the best doors in this whole joint. I can't <laughs> wait to go in here. <laughs> Click. Oh, come on. <laughs> so I don't remember. I, I didn't write down exactly why he was in there, but everyone else who's been in there has been, you know, doomed or, or crazy or something. It seems a bad decision <laughs> that they left Rodney a gun in there. <laughs> it, Which, even after he, I assume, uh, blew his own brains out, they, uh, out of out of honor for it, they hung the pistol on <laughs> yonder hook, and it's laid there ever since. <laughs> I like to be in a room and describe something that's you know within pointing distance as yonder. <laughs> Yeah. It's usually you're, you're it, describing it like a hillside as yonder or something. It's a big room. They do say it's big. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's the the grim history of the of the the Mycor murder coconut room, and that's where he's going to to lock his his wife up uh, with the aid of Rachel. Uh, yes, and there uh, he tells a her few to, more. Sorry to uh, to set matters right by lighting a fire, dusting the old and much worn furniture. Airing the bedclothes, etc. So that's you're, you're hoping the etc. will do something about you know sponging up the gore there. Um, yeah, it doesn't say that she does that. I right. don't know how do you how do you get grim gore out of cocoa matting, I, which serves as carpet. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. And again, I just I, I there, there's no mention of what the what the bathroom situation is in this or the other house. So you're imagining that Rachel's duties might include you know chamber potting, uh, that type of thing. I, I mean, I assume it's Bucket, right? Yes, yes, that, that does come up. This could be our second uh, our second Blairiana. Uh, there are enormous oil paintings in the room, uh, but however, the, the lighting is very bad, <laughs> and there are bars on the window. So it struck me funny that it's like, uh, 
Do we have any really bad oil paintings? Like something that you might not even put in a, uh, you know, like a, a cheap hotel, like a La Quinta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got some large ones in the basement. We could hang them in there. Uh, you can't see them though. Is that a problem? Nah, hang them up there. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did feel the need to appoint it nicely. I bet they were trying to. After that guy painted the bad oil paintings, they were probably like, "Oh yeah, your fee? Uh, yeah, well, it's right up in that room over there. Why don't you go in there and get it?" <laughs> Damn, he didn't fall for it. Uh, so he sets up the room, setting up a room. Yeah, very nice. He, uh, yes, he sets it up, and then he just goes to his wife, and this is the first time. That he's ever confronted her about these sexy, sexy letters mm-hmm. from Oscar. <laughs> and uh, and this is how he starts it. And I, I mean, I think this is pretty searing. If I were her, I'd be like, oh, you sting me, sir. Okay. You, madam, said he, have by your conduct, both before and after marriage, forced me to keep you a prisoner <laughs> within these walls so long as you live or I exist. <laughs> Uh, that's a hell of an opening. Yeah. I was like, what, what do you like? Never brought it up before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Guess, yeah. Like you said before, give her an opportunity to write this wrong. No, he's been forced. I'm, it's the abusive guy's to, handbook. You forced me to imprison you for the rest of my life and yours. Well, I mean, is counseling even on the table? Like we could try that before, uh, not at all. And then uh, this is his. Uh, this sentence made me laugh because it starts strong, it falters a bit, but then he brings it home. Mocking wretch, <laughs> your foul deed shall have plenty of scope here for improvement, <laughs> and a prisoner you shall be during the remainder of your life. So it's kind of like, uh, look, son, uh, I'm going to spank you. I mean, I don't have to if you <laughs> if you turn your behavior around. But you know what? I'm going to spank you until your ass falls off. <laughs> he gives her a little opening and is like, nah, I'm going to imprison you. Right. Yeah, yeah. There, there's room for improvement. He also sort of dials back his promise because he said, you forced me to keep you a prisoner within these walls so long as you live or I exist. And then he quickly walks that back and says, a prisoner you shall be during the remainder of your life. So yeah, he doesn't even so, give her the out of, if I die, you know, then you can be freed. Right. Yeah. No. Um, what's her name? Rachel's never going to let that happen. Right. Anyway, so. uh, and Irene, though, you know, you've just received word that you're going to be a prisoner during the remainder of your life uh, because of your conduct, you know, has forced your husband to do that. You might be sort of distraught, right? That would be- I'd be totally bummed out. This would be awful. Irene's I mean, kind of cool gosh. with it. <laughs> yes, she's not only cool. This is like, this is an upgrade. Yeah. This is like life hack. <laughs> she would now she's- have full opportunity of gilding her thoughts to self-advantage or disadvantage. She felt free to try to act as she in any case would have done, regarding very little the shame brought on her husband by her intrigue with the tutor, who she simply idolized. So she's like, hey, like, uh, I, I can, I can self, self-actualize during this period. I can, I can uh, act as I, I would have done no matter what, and like, even yeah. though I, I brought all this shame. Finally, time to think and just be alone. Jeez, <laughs> without that guy. And then uh, a scant, very small two paragraphs later, she longed for the hour of flight from the dismal shelter under which she was doomed to dwell. <laughs> So that didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. Her, her... It was like 10 minutes in, like, this is going to be great. Thanks. No, you're doing me a favor, Clang. Shit. I've made a huge mistake. Yeah. Made a... Just the power of positive thinking didn't get her too far in that situation. 
No. And there, here we go. This this happens every so often in this book, and it's always jarring every time they mention this. But she says, as she's getting locked up, never once casting a thought on her infant son. <laughs> no, yes. Knowing well, it would be passionately cared for. And we had, this This came up once earlier in the chapter after, uh, when, when John had to lay down on the fading couch after he discovered the letters um, he says something like, uh, oh, yeah, he lay in an unconscious condition until the next morning when his first inquiry was relative to his son. So it's like a, they have their own little Godot in this book who's he's only mentioned uh, with regard to what other characters are like, you know, it, it, when they have a passing thought about him. It's very uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, George and Martha, like, don't talk about our son, Martha. <laughs> there, is there a son? Yeah. We've never, he's never walked into the room and, like, thrown an orange wedge at dad or anything, you know? Yeah. He's, he's just mentioned completely vaguely off screen. And uh, so it's very funny that she's imprisoned in this thing and she really thinks it will be well cared for. <laughs> How does she get that idea? Yeah, like, where does that come from? You're clearly a cruel master who just locked me up here. What makes you think that like you're going to give him the time of day? My husband has a locked murder room, but I'm pretty sure my son's going to be good. Yeah, she doesn't even inquire. She just makes that assumption. Yeah. yeah. The son is like the boy on Mad Men where the, the daughter gets all these story arcs and stuff, and then the son just shows up and is like, did they change the actor or did he just get a haircut? Right. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so that's all I got for that amazing chapter. Yeah, but it only it only continues to get more crazy. I think that chapter 12 is the big escape, but chapter 11 uh, gives us a lot uh, to deal with, too. It starts with a fortune cookie. The trickling tide of fortune sometimes ebbs slowly. <laughs> oh, okay, it seems trickling is ebbing slowly as it goes, but uh, we'll take your word for that. Uh, this is one of those, by the way, I won't read the whole thing, but her tortured metaphors, which switch quickly. That it's talking about barriers, <laughs> boisterousness. You know, aren't we starting with a tide <laughs> and it's ebbing? And then, you know, soon you're to like rifles and cannons. And yeah, a cow is jumping over the moon. And <laughs> yeah, she's... a cow is Oliver Cromwell or something. Uh, yeah, so uh, we get the fortune cookie and then kaboom. When almost a year of Lady Dunford's private imprisonment was about drawing to a close, she was beginning to partly believe the truth of her husband's dogmatic remarks. Yeah. It's partly so, believe. A year in? Yeah. I'm starting and to think this goes, guy was serious about locking me up till uh, as long as I live or he exists. I'm pretty sure she's bringing in a meal and letting me go. No, she's still imprisoning me. And then 364 days in, son of a... He was serious. That guy. Uh. I thought he was razzing me. Holy cow. I'd better make a plan. And, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. She waits a year and then goes, all right, I, I suppose this is real. It's amazing. As we continue to... We'll describe the, the plan and how she uh, executes it. And we just need to keep in mind, this is the plan that it took her a year to come up with, you know, like Andy Dufresne busting out of Shawshank. Like when, when you when you look back on that, you're like, wow, that was masterfully executed. You know, every every step had to be done uh, gradually in order to make this happen. But uh, wow, he pulled it off at the end. This is more of like a 
you might try this night one. <laughs> it probably wouldn't work, and then you'd try to get something better. But this was uh, this is the masterstroke. It is. Uh, I described the plot to uh, to Bridget because uh-huh. I promised her. I'm like, look, I'm not going to read you any the of these things. Prose, yeah. Which I've done in the past. That is a uh, a violation of the terms of our marriage. <laughs> However, yes. this plot, what do you think of this? And uh, she found it very, very funny. So <laughs> so let's get into let's the get into escape it. plot. It, it all hinges on she had strongly been endeavoring during this time to arrive at some possible means of communication with Marjorie Mason, her much-loved maid, whose yes. services Sir John still retained. Um, so I had, I had to look. I just It is the first mention of this beloved maid, Marjorie Mason. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so did she bring her with her from yeah her own i place? guess she had a maid at castle dilworth and then just sort right. of said like dilworth. i want you to, to come on with me and then john did not fire her once he locked her in a room even though she's you know a, a, a loyalist you know he didn't purge the castle of loyalists at this point in time sure so he had to tell her like look I'm getting married to this guy. Absolutely loathe this piece of shit. I hate him. You want to come work for him? That's right. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, she probably saw the writing on the wall with her parents over mortgaged or whatever that was all about. Oh, yeah. She got out before the big purge. Yeah, yes. that's that's pretty good. And so uh, she is, uh, Irene is up in this, you know, we're led to believe it's like a tower. It's It's high above. Uh, the ground, uh, like you said, barred windows. It sort of implies that it's like uh, frosted glass, so it's hard to even look out of. But she mm-hmm. she will often bring her table close to the window and mount on its shaky leaf, then step into the great windowsill. So this is an enormous window. It's high up. She's standing on the windowsill. It's like, you know, you, you'd go out of this in Peter Pan to fly off to Never Never Land. She will pull out her handkerchief and rub the puny panes to try and catch a glimpse of nature and probably chance to see some of the servants. But her room is so high up that it's very difficult for her to recognize one menial from another. It's a nice touch. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, the menials. Uh, toss them some, some, some bones. But she often imagined she could not be mistaken in perceiving a form in the garden that surely strongly resembled her favorite maid. So a lot going on, but it... it, it, it hammers home how far removed she is because she's trying to like squint and look out to see if she can make out Marjorie, who I guess we're led to believe is just milling about with the other menials down there all the time. I I, I think it's implied that she's gardening or something huh. or every day she has to go down and like pick carrots or something. I, sure, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> um, and now it becomes, my note was that it, it becomes a, a like point and click adventure game. Because uh, you're like, you know, you're in a room and it's like open drawer. Like there's a telescope, like add telescope to inventory. So fortunately, the gun is not still yonder, uh, but she does have it. They did provide access to a telescope for all the lunatics that they imprison in here. <laughs> uh, which which person brought that in? Was it Hector Hyde or whatever? Or Rodney Rupert? I mean, Rodney Rupert. Yeah. He probably he, he liked he was a birder. <laughs> yes. And then she's like, you know, look at inventory. You have a diamond ring. And then she uses that to uh cut the glass you know like one of those things in like a, a an 80s heist movie where you you suction cup it on and then use the circle to cut around it yes and she arrived at the wise conclusion of extracting the lowest corner pane which she cleverly and effectually succeeded in doing so she's you know doing her own little uh, oceans 11 here 
And then this is all very unclear. She placed her fleecy wrap carelessly against it. Because she's wondering how she will hide the opening from the cute eye of her who proved her only visitor, which is Rachel, the um, Sir John's loyal maid. So I wondered, does she have a, because uh, we learn later that this uh, Rachel is visiting every two hours. <laughs> so does well, she that, have that, a watch? That bucket starts to, starts to stack up sometimes. That's true. I can't imagine the smell. But does she have a watch? And so she's like, look, uh, I, you know, 12 and 2, um, between 12 and 2, I can push the table over and I can perch precariously on this huge window and then maybe I can cut the diamond thing out, but Oh God, it's almost two. I've got to get down, move the thing over, carelessly toss my <laughs> fleecy, my wrap. fleecy wrap over the window. Yeah. That I mean, I keep my fleecy wrap by the window. There's nothing odd about that. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, a maid would not notice that. No. They would just think, of course she, Tossed her fleecy wrap over the lowest part of the window that she cunningly cut out. <laughs> I think that we're, I mean, we're, we're led to believe in this part that she's MacGyver, essentially. So I, I my, my headcanon is that she's constructed some sort of makeshift sundial through that hole where it sort of shines in, like when Indiana Jones goes down into that temple and holds the staff up. Oh, sure. Maybe yeah. she's using the hook that the, the gun was on yonder to, to do that and... Um, you know, she's she's torn up a little bit of the coconut carpet and cut a hole in the gore to, to have it shine through so she knows when the next maid appointment is coming. I guess, although that MacGyverishness doesn't really come through in the next phase of her plan, <laughs> which is, and we don't know how long this lasts, because at the same hour each day found the eager mistress and anxious maid in their respective places. So each day implies... I mean, that could be another year. I don't really sure. know. Uh, but uh, she takes a stick and and takes her, uh, like, a handkerchief out and waves it. I think it was a fireplace poker, maybe. So, again, it's 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 just, you know, day of the tentacle here, combining these objects and seeing. You click on things and, like, add scarf to fireplace poker. And, some, you know, some, you can't do that. And this time it, like, ding, and you get an extra point. And so you stick it out the window. Okay, so she uses her telescope. She sees that it's her. Well, she, she Amanda realized that people are going to be like, this is absurd. And so she gives us this little like hand wave where she says, uh, maybe mentioned that Marjorie Mason visited the same plot of ground at the same hour every available morning uh, since she was robbed of the pleasure of waiting on her mistress merely to get a glimpse of the window she knew must belong to her ladyship's haunt of hardship. Ugh. So she just in, in terms of her being like, how would she ever, even if she's waving this handkerchief out this window, how would she know the maid is there? Oh, the maid goes there every day at the same hour. <laughs> oh, sorry. I said handkerchief. I'm sorry. This I have the words now. This could easily be tried and tying her cambric square firmly around the top <laughs> of a small poker. She timidly sent it through the cavity at the same time viewing Marjorie by means of her telescope. So yeah, you're damn right. That's pretty MacGyver there. Yeah, she's she's got a and and Amanda calls it the wafting emblem of despair. Which, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, she's got a telescope in one hand. She's maneuvering this poker with another one. It's a very intricate setup. And so Marjorie recognizes it because first of all, she knew that that could be the only room that she would be imprisoned in. Sure. And so when someone daily, I guess for 
weeks, months, who knows, <laughs> starts waving a cambric square firmly <laughs> on the top of a small poker, you begin to take notice. <laughs> and so, uh, so she does. She gets her attention. Again, I hope that that was like a full year. Right. Like, Man, it's, it's day 364. That person, that lunatic, is still waving a poker with a cambric square on it. There are some odd like, stains on that cambric by this point in time. Yeah. What a weird... Oh! <laughs> that's the only room that she could be imprisoned in. It's probably her. Her son's riding a bike past as this happens. He's <laughs> getting ready to go to kindergarten. Yes. So she finally... She sends her an, uh, a letter. She throws it out the window. Uh, it doesn't say how it... it that was very unclear to me. I thought it was like sending notes up to the evil bird kite. Yeah, it was very similar to that. It says, in less than five minutes, another signal appeared through the open space in the form of a small piece of paper. It appeared to be making its way with wonderful alacrity towards her. Uh, so I, I don't know if it was tied to a string or just dropped down. It doesn't really need to be intricate if she's, you know, it doesn't seem like anyone pays any attention Anyone else pays any attention to the wafting emblem of despair or the maid, like, looking up at this window all day long? Right, or someone throwing a letter out. But she does say uh, Marjorie loosed the cord. Okay, so yeah, the, so it is tied the to package the is tied up like a rock or something. <laughs> and then plainly written uh, these, and, and forgive me, it's a, a paragraph, but I want to read it okay. because it is so hilarious. Uh, Dear Marjorie and friend... So that's the same person. You at last have proof of the confidence reposed in you by me. How I have thought of you since I was severed from you, no one knows. That you have been aware of my imprisonment, I can no longer doubt. However, I shall not presently give you any particulars, but beg to say that if you could by any means you thought safe, let me hear if you have ever received any letters for me from Oscar. Wow. I should ever feel grateful and reward you accordingly. My reason for such inquiry I shall explain further on, dear Marjorie. Keep this dark. Might I suggest that you slip a note under my door this evening at five o'clock precisely? This you can do, I believe, at this hour with safety. Trusting you are keeping strong and hoping soon to thank you personally for such secret kindness. Believe me, sincerely yours, Irene. <laughs> to to Marjorie. So oh. let me rewrite that for you. Sure. Help! <laughs> yeah. What the hell is that? You don't need a string. You just can unfurl that scroll and it will hit the bottom of the tower, I think. She could climb down that letter. Yeah. That's what she, she finally gets her attention and she scribbles that. She sends her war and peace. You at, l at last have proof of the confidence reposed in you by me. <laughs> she had to admit every uh, two-hour break that uh, Rachel came that she had to stop writing. I am crapping in a bucket. Another, Help! Another year has passed since I started writing this note to you. Yes. That is amazing. Yeah, that's that's terrific. And so, yeah, it essentially just says, you know, uh, I know that the five o'clock hour is when they stop you know, there, no one's ever at the door at that point in time. So if you can come up then, that'd be great. Right. <laughs> and yeah, she sort of, she says that she's like hurt and surprised that Oscar uh, uh, has not sent her any um, news or, or, or letters during this time. But it's like, uh, it's been a year and you married another dude. So Oscar right. is probably, you know, in, in Panama City or something, living it up. <laughs> yes. Like, what do you, uh, I mean... 
What do you expect? <laughs> so, so after that note, we get this. Every morning at the same hour, mistress and maid were at their respective posts. Mm-hmm. The former, with brightened eye, mounted on her favorite pedestal of triumphant account and gazing intently on the object of rescue, the latter casting that grave and careworn look in the direction of the niched signboard of distress, <laughs> stood firmly and faithfully until re- she received the watchword of action and warning. You know... Maybe stop looking in the direction of the niche signboard of distress and do something. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't seem... What the hell are they... Why is she looking at her every day? This is the plan that took them over a year to figure out. Just want to reinforce that. They've already established the hour when you can safely deliver messages to and from her at her door. And yet they're still... Uh, right. Is the niche signboard of distress like one of those signs for like a iPhone repair uh, shop that guys stand on the street corner and like spin around. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what yes. Irene's doing. She's attracting attention by. <laughs> She's really good at that. <laughs> it hasn't hit the ground once. Maybe it's one of those things where you go to a place that has lots of like really really good businesses, like a lot of foot traffic, and then there's like toaster repair, you know, <laughs> stuck in a window. Like, how are you still doing yes, this? Yes. <laughs> that's the signboard of distress. And then the guy's like, "That'll be a hundred eighty dollars to repair that." It's like, well, it's, that's just never going to happen, sir. Right. <laughs> Best of luck. Uh, the one thing, the only other thing that I have left here is that uh, when when Rachel shows up after uh, Marjorie prepared her for, pre- paid her first visit, uh, it says that. Uh, Irene seemed to suddenly grow quite cheerful and animated, so much that Rachel, on entering some short time afterwards, was so struck with the change to, as to acknowledge that her ladyship must surely appreciate the book she held in her hand to an extraordinary extent, since it had altered her demeanor so. And they, they just cruelly, frustratingly do not tell us what book that could be. That, like, you know, Rachel comes in, sees her reading... Uh, 64 squares and says, wow, that must be really good. <laughs> it's made her right. so happy. It's also so funny that she, uh, so she walks in and, uh, uh, you said Irene. I don't know who that I'm is. Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's a alternate, alternate fanfic. She's going like, <clears throat> I'm out of here. I'm going to escape. Like, oh, is that, uh, that book you're reading must be fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the book. Idiot. I'm out of here. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, so that's chapter 11. Yeah. Uh, as we move on to chapter 12, this is a good time to do this one email. I don't want to wait cause it fits in now. This one was from Erin. Okay. She wrote in, uh, chapters, uh, four, 11 to 14 of Irene Italy are the, the worst heist movie ever. I counted 43 things that had to go right in order to get Irene sprung from the pokey and off to her dream bigamous wedding in the new world. Uh, I thought it would be fun to make a game where you play as the imprisoned Irene trying to gain freedom and marry your beloved tutor, but it turns out it isn't much fun as a game, mostly because the plan Irene, Marjorie, and Oscar concocted was garbage and unlikely to end well from them. I'm no statistician, but I did some math. I estimated the chance of success for each of the 43 items, and then using my realistic estimates, the probability of all 43 items going right on the first try is roughly... One in 17 billion. <laughs> and so what, uh, so Aaron has made a spreadsheet as the game that we'll post the link to when we do this. And you can go in and she listed all the things, categorized them, what needs to go right in order to pull this off, such as items like, uh, does John allow Marjorie to join his household staff when you marry? Uh, is Marjorie able without being caught to steal the white wedding dress you didn't wear when you married John? 
Is Marjorie able to pass correspondence from Oscar to you without being noticed by any other household staff? Does Dr. O'Sullivan, president of Oscar's college, offer to allow Oscar to take four to six weeks off, et cetera, et cetera? So you go in there and you can put in the percentage of, of what you think might happen. So for that first one, does John allow Marjorie to join his household staff when you marry? I put that as like 95%. Like, you know, sure, why not? But then you get ones like, does your note on a cord sent down to your Marjorie go unnoticed by all other household staff? That's pretty low odds, you know? That's like a 40% one. So then, Yeah, we don't get a description of it, but she says she's down there with the other menials. Yes. So <laughs> one of them menials has got to be loyal to Sir John. <laughs> so then Aaron's uh, game will we'll calculate at the very end what uh, your your final odds were of pulling that whole thing off based on what you assigned the percentages to. And so, yeah, hers was 1 in 17 billion. I think mine got down there pretty damn quick as well. Wow. She says, even if That's she generously great. assumes the chance of success for each of the 43 items is 99%, which it definitely is not, the probability of them all going right on the first try is only 65% then. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, let's get into the plan then. Yeah, yeah, chapter 12 is where uh, it really gets executed. Um, so frightened did Lady Dunfern become lost, lest the eye of the straggler might chance more than once to catch the meaning of Marjorie's loitering about the grounds immediately below her window. She seemed imperative to alter her arrangements. So yeah, again, it, it does seem like a tricky thing to like, why is her best friend always hanging out outside her window? <laughs> uh, but we immediately get a, a letter from Oscar. Hell Otto, yeah. Headley Burks. Headley Burks, baby. <laughs> I'm Headley Burks with National Public Radio. But I do think, since we get it later, I do think it's like the town and then the Shire, right? Or whatever, like Berkshire. I mean, I guess. It's just the way that it's formatted in the book is yeah, very funny. It's a good greeting. <laughs> oh, Headley, sir. Oh, Burks in return to you, sir. Burks to you, my friend. Burks, Burks get in here. Um... So, oh, oh, then it goes to, so we get to Oscar, mm -hmm. and this is where I sincerely wished. Uh, the mind of him who was in full possession of the facts regarding Lady Dunfern's present position became perfectly distracted. This is Oscar. And on entering college next morning, after receiving her note, was so overcome with grief as to cause grave alarm amongst the many students... <laughs> who benefited so much by his strenuous efforts to ensure success. <laughs> well, I don't know what that last part means, but I, I could just see him coming in with his visor on backwards and his white sunglasses up on his head. <laughs> and everyone's like, dude, how's it going, Oscar? Uh, oh, man. Yeah, no. And he's like, gosh, I can't do it, guys. <laughs> this sucks, man. Bro, bro, you don't even need that chick. No, man. She's like sweet piece. No, I man. gotta have her. You, you know, uh, you can get any piece of tail you want in Headley Burks. Like, you know, these chicks are all over you. Just back off and give me two to six weeks whoa, to figure whoa, this out. Whoa, 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 all right. I come in here and you bite my head off, man. You've changed. This chick changed I'm sorry. You. I'm sorry. Fist bump me, bro. Yeah, I'm sorry. Bro. We'll, we'll work it out over the beer pong table later. <laughs> Yeah, so his his college. <laughs> well, I think that he's there to, to is he the tutor of these students who are so alarmed by his uh, demeanor. I, his strenuous efforts to ensure success. <laughs> I don't know. I, I does that mean that he's a tutor? <laughs> well, so then I think because Doctor O'Sullivan is the eminent president of the college, and so he sees Oscar, you know, just weeping into his four loco or whatever, and then he right. says he's he's who. 
he has lately observed was laboring under some weight of sorrow in such a state of despair, strongly advised a change of air. <laughs> so this is like the other thing that doctors would do. They'd, they'd pronounce conditions grave indeed, and then they'd see someone with like tuberculosis and be like, ah, oh, well, yes, you need, to, you need to get them to a different climate. <laughs> did, did, I, uh, did I bleed you out with a razor? Oh, I already did that. Oh, here, let me rip off another prescription here. Yeah. Uh, take a change of air. <laughs> there you are. Yes. yes, this will hopefully decrease the graveness of your situation. <laughs> and then we get this weird little thing. It says, at the same time, he kindly offered him a substitute for four weeks, at the end of which time, if he still found himself unable to resume his tuitions, he would prolong his vacation by two weeks. Okay. But just say, so just, four say to, just say six weeks here. Like It was four to six. I thought it was two to six, which would be funnier. But <laughs> yes. All right. I'll give it that this is much more reasonable. You can have either four weeks of paid vacation or six weeks. <laughs> uh, well, as a non-moron, I will take the six weeks, sir. Thank you. Uh, so he takes off. He heads to Upper Joy Street, which his place is at. Uh, but then there's this. Uh, we go back to Rachel and, and the lady. Mm-hmm. And I want you to analyze this sentence. Because okay. this is one of those that is just, to me, mind-blowing. Prompted strongly by Sir John before entering, Rachel carried with her messages of a rather condoling character to be delivered to her ladyship in such pitiful phrases as to twist from her remarks for the use of him who feared that something dreadful was about to happen owing to a miserable dream he had only a couple nights before. I could do this for you because I already pulled this paragraph to shorten it. It, was, okay. it stood out that much. Uh, John had a bad dream and wondered what it meant. <laughs> what is the... So prompted strongly by Sir John before entering. Yeah, so sorry. It's got to be the worst start to a sentence. John had a bad dream and, and sent Rachel to figure out what it meant. That's the Okay. Yeah, he was prompting her strongly outside the door, I guess. That's what the thing was. And presumably this is about uh, the miserable dream from a couple nights before. So he waited a few days <laughs> before prompting strongly. Uh, is about her infidelity, but he got proof of it over a year ago. And he caught them, you know, snuggling on like their engagement party so i'm not sure what this dream has to do with anything what uh what are the do you think are the i tried to think of and write them down the pitiful phrases to twist from her remarks for the use of him who feared that something dreadful was about to happen what would those be like oh so like he's wah, strong my, me had dreamy where my teeth all fall out wow like that's the pitiful pitiful phrase but so he so he buttonholes Rachel. And he's like, hey, 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 I hate to be strong about this, but I really need you to take these pitiful phrases into her. Do I need to do see it? if you can get her to, to tell me something about why I had a, a shitty dream? I was in there half an hour ago, so I've got to wait 90 minutes. That's my schedule. Damn it. Yeah. I wanted it to happen now. You should have prompted me stronger. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't figure out what the phrases would be. Yeah. Uh, pitiful yeah. phrases that uh, like Sir John is so he's so sorry right. like he's he's really got a bad tummy these days and that's <laughs> why he's locked you away for a, a year and more possibly two years maybe three the timeline is unclear yeah hey hey Rachel how's my son <laughs> <laughs> oh he he's well cared for as you well know oh, duh take confidence in that. <laughs> Um, 
but yeah, so I, I, I'm not really sure what that has led to. I mean, that's like the only communication John has had with her, but it's, it's, I think they just move on from it and we don't get any more information about the dream, but the dream obviously foretells this uh, escape attempt that's about to happen, which is where it gets super convoluted and super hilarious. It really does. But also if this guy's having bad dreams, I would just say like, challenging Rachel to bring in pitiful phrases might not be the best way to prevent what you know is going to be a, sh- a terrible escape. <laughs> like, it's just pretty easy to step up the security, isn't it? Right, yeah. Get rid of the uh, fleecy robe or whatever and uh, take the poker out of a house. So, Or, you know, fire her best friend who's conspiratorial or like gazing up at her window at all hours of the day. Right. Hey, hey menials. Uh <laughs> Marjorie, you're fired. Call us that. Uh, Guy who's trimming trees, come stand by this murder door for 24 hours a day. (laughs) I'll give you a chair and a bucket. Yeah, but sir, the topiaries. Oh. (laughs) Uh, So we we get some information because everything hinges on this kind of about the layout of the uh, the menials' quarters. Uh, Rachel, the the bad maid's room, is next to Marjorie, the good maid, and. Rachel keeps the key to Irene's cell in her drawer. So that's that's the uh, that's sort of important. This is like recon provided mm-hmm. by AMR here. It was yes. a, it was a habit with Rachel to sleep with her bedroom door ajar by order of her master. <laughs> well, that's not then a habit, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for this is uh, lest a fire might originate during the hours of repose or burglars enter and carry with them some valuables of no slight worth or interest. So a lot to unpack there. The, the master's paranoia about fire or burglars entering. And this is weird because burglars usually leave carrying with them valuables. But these burglars are going to be entering and carrying with them some valuables. And valuables <laughs> usually tend to be of, of no slight worth or interest, right? <laughs> That's sort of the uh, definition I... of a valuable. I thought it was hilarious that the uh, sentence had to tell us what burglars did. Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess crappy burglars come in and grab uh, your dog food dish mm-hmm. and a half can of bottle of mix. mustard yeah, from the pantry. Yes. <laughs> but Duh, I'm a bad but, burglar, George. Why did we go in there? We broke in, and now we have a felony charge on our heads. We carried with us valuables, and then we left with, uh, you know, a a sack of flour. Yeah, why did you take that bag of jewels and leave them when we went in there? (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, that's why she sleeps with her door ajar. (laughs) Uh, Which is, you know, not that big of a deal either, either, as we see. It doesn't say unlocked or anything like that. But here we get some acting by Marjorie, which is pretty awesome. Speaking of Blariana's bucket, uh, about 10 o'clock, an hour before Marjorie's usual time to retire, she ably feigned a very severe attack of indigestion uh, and trying to look as dejected and sick as she could in consequence, requested she might be permitted to go into her, to her own room for the night, a request which Rachel readily granted. So... I don't. I don't understand why it says her room was next to Rachel's, but I guess she's has to get permission to sleep in it for their own for the night. Uh, I have no idea. But Rachel well, obviously oh. grants it because it says, "As Marjorie, Rachel readily granted it, as Marjorie and she always traveled by the express train of friendship." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so Marjorie's uh, uh, feigned severe attack of indigestion 
I can only guess was as good as those people who call into the HR department and go, uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to come in today. Uh, I don't know what it is. I just like, I feel like crap. I, uh, hey, isn't that a concert tonight? The yeah. Hootie and the Blowfish are reuniting for that. Uh, are they? I don't know, man. I just feel. <laughs> so that's what Marjorie did. And Rachel was like, well, you, you run right along to bed then. Yes. I like that the guy called in to, to call out sick the day before the concert as a, you know, you, you, Hootie the Blowfish, you'd probably want to party and, you know, you know. But, be doing shots of the thing and calling sick the next day but sure, he wants to sure. get to the, to the parking lot early on to uh, party with the fellow blowfish heads <laughs> That's right. i was imagining marjorie like you know in inside the bathroom being like you know jeff daniels and dumb and dumber just like oh oh no they that that long john silvers isn't sitting right she's okay yeah you don't have to share a bed with me tonight that's you know <laughs> request granted She's uh, throwing uh, apples into a pot of water, yeah. like splash, splash. Oh boy! <laughs> Whoo! So there we go. This is something that yeah, that the Ocean's Eleven crew never never faked a case of diarrhea. So th- this scheme has one up on them. And then mm-hmm. uh, I don't. The scheme hinges on Marjorie comes to Rachel's door three separate times, knocks, <laughs> never gets a response, and just goes, huh. All right. All the while, Marjorie is hiding under Rachel's bed, having <laughs> retrieved the key from her, um, from her, from her lockbox or whatever. This is baffling to me, but on the other hand, I would love to see it in the uh, you know multiple frames, uh, Ocean's Eleven style. <laughs> With the cool jazz track playing, boom, boom, do, do, boom, do, do, with her under the bed, and then Rachel coming to her door, and so that's in the upper right of the four screens that they're showing, and like she's not there, and then you know cutting down to someone like lighting up a cigarette in Sir John's kitchen, do, 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 do. <laughs> the wanting symbol cut. of woe is outside of the window of Irene's. Yeah. And then the whole time just cutting to her under the bed, <laughs> looking at her watch like, why tick, am I here? Tuck, tick, tuck. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, explain, well, is there any way we can we can simplify this? So I think she, she goes into Marjorie's because she says, I've got, you know, mega D. I've got to go, uh, you know, lay in my bed, uh, in my own bed, please. Mar- uh, Rachel says, okay. That means that she then goes, Marjorie goes, opens her door, which is always ajar in case of burglars entering with valuables. She takes the key, and then instead of going to her own room, where Rachel was happy to knock on the door and not receive a response and not consider that suspicious, she then yes. just goes under her bed. <laughs> Why? I, there is absolutely, I can see absolutely no reason for this. None. Uh, you said, you presented the theory that she had to be sure she was asleep. Uh-huh. However, I quickly wave that away with the, she's commanded to sleep with her door open. Right. So there's no reason that that Marjorie wouldn't, uh, having locked herself in her room and not answer because Rachel doesn't seem to care, uh, could have just quietly slipped out once Rachel was asleep, looked in the door and went, oh yeah, the old bag is snoring. <laughs> and then 
gone about her business. And traditionally, I don't a, understand. A, a better way to ensure that someone remains asleep when you've checked to see if they're asleep. <laughs> Peer in the door, see if they're, you know, asleep, as opposed to lay in bed, you know, see if you can sense a change in their breathing pattern, suggesting they've slept into like, you know, REM sleep, and then creep out <laughs> from underneath their bed, which hopefully... I mean, I'd like to think that if, if someone crept out from under my bed, that might, uh, you know, cause me to wake up. Like, <laughs> that seems like about as, as disturbing as something could possibly be. Also, what do you think was on her after she, like, you know, like, crab crawled out from under that bed? I, I'm, I'm assuming there was gore, some grim gore under there. And yeah. That, pretty much dust bunnies from, you know, the 1740s. That coconut carpet is uh, bristly, so you're probably getting some, <laughs> you know, you're, you're hearing that. Like, you're, it's scratchy. <laughs> uh, all right. So here's, is there a more tortured way to say this? Here, here it is. Divesting herself of her clothing, <laughs> Rachel soon put herself in a position to guarantee slumber. <laughs> She went to bed. She, I mean, yeah. my God. She wrapped herself torture. well within the fleecy folds of nature and in less than 10 minutes was safely sailing in the boat of dreamland. Oh, Rachel God. went to sleep. <laughs> she was, uh, what were they on? The express train express of friendship? Express train to friendship. Yeah. And now they're safely sailing in the boat of dreamland. <laughs> and then it says Marjorie, for it was she who lay stretched under the bed of her who never at any time doubted her words or actions when fully convinced of Rachel's safe retirement, crept along the carpeted floors on hands and knees, carrying with her the key to victory. Hopefully she didn't creep along too long. Like, she's not creeping all the way out of the house on hands and knees. That would be a very funny, like, moment as she, uh, you know, from her point of view, and suddenly she sees legs, you know, and one foot tapping, and then, yeah. like, I shouldn't <laughs> have crawled this yeah. Into the yeah. room! Right, of course. Yes. Uh, and then we get this one. This was a, a settled a hell down moment for me. Proudly and much agitated did Marjorie steal her way across along the many winding corridors of carpeted comfort until she at last came to the bottom of the ghost-like marble steps which led to her mistress and swiftly running up the icy heights until reaching the door of danger and bloodthirsty revenge she, with the caution of a murderess, thrust with great and exceptional care the key into its much-used opening and heroically succeeded in gaining admittance. She opened a door. Settle the hell down. <laughs> Although, it was pretty exciting because Irene is so excited that she faints at this moment. This is unbelievable. <laughs> so, the last we saw Lady Dunfern, she was counting down with her watch the minutes. Like, oh boy, it's three hours till I escape and get to see Oscar, my college sweetheart. Yeah. Uh, son... Screw yourself. I don't give a... <laughs> uh, it's now it's two hours. Oh, boy. Time is drawing. Now it's one hour. Oh, now it's time. <laughs> and she faints dead, like coma. <laughs> what the hell was with old-timey people? What do you... Is this a thing? I, I mean, it's probably like, you know, if you buy a KitchenAid mixer, you probably find excuses to use it. Like, oh, you can't just have this sitting here. we got to make some cookies. If you have a fainting couch, you're like, well, I oh, mean, I guess. I, but yeah. that, that was like a thousand bucks. And, you know, it's like, you know, we never use it. So we got we to gotta put it to use so my, my husband will stop nagging me about buying it. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, we would go on vacations, which I was excited to go on. 
And it would be like, we're starting early. We're going to, you know, before it gets light, mm-hmm. we're going to wake you kids up. You know, it's going to be five. And I loved that. Like, let's go. Yeah. And, and so I wouldn't sleep. <laughs> but I didn't faint ever. <laughs> From, From oh, my God. We're going on a fishing trip up north. Ah. Yeah. It seems like the one thing you could do other than the, you know, uh, Marjorie's case of indigestion that might actually prevent that thing you're looking forward to from happening. Yes. But because, you know, it's the whole rest of the plan hinges on Marjorie essentially becoming like the Hulk because <laughs> she's, you know, a menial. I can't imagine the nutrition as well. But Lady Dunfern lays passed out. I'll get ahead of it until they've traveled to Oscar's like uncle's rented castle. Oh yeah. She's, and she, I guess through the thick, uh, you, the thicket of prose, you can't really tell, but I assume she's like splashing her with, uh, there's probably a cistern of water over there for her to wash her hands after she does her toilet routine yeah. or whatever. She's probably splashing her with that and like going, Hey, Hey lady Dunfer, what, what's going on? Come on. Hey, Hey, snap out of it. And Lady Dunford's like, nope, no reaction whatsoever. Yeah. So she actually thinks she's dead. So she runs somewhere else, checks on everything, then does a fireman carry with Yeah, she crept down with the chilling the steps of fate, uh, clasping uh, Lady Dunford once more in her arms. And then with the air of a duchess, I don't know what that means, Marjorie dashed open the outer door at the left wing of the building and with her liberated load of love, <laughs> swept forever <laughs> from its touch. So yeah, she's just... Uh, Carrying her the entire way, a liberated load. But she says takes her in her arms. Have you ever tried to move? You've done that game, I'm sure. Try to move me, I'm dead. Oh, yeah, huh. You can't. It's very, very difficult. Our human body's very unwieldy. I'll just say that. It's very, yes. And so I, I salute uh, Marjorie here. Is like That's why I assume the fireman's carry. That's the only yeah, way you that's, can move. Yeah, what I was imagining. You got to flop it over onto the shoulders and then put one arm around each, you know, sort of, and uh, and then hope that you can heft the weight. But uh, <laughs> I mean, they're both. I think we're led to believe sort of dainty. Yes. Right? Oh, I mean, I just you make the assumption. Yeah. I mean, they're okay. they're wearing you know their their clothes like the dresses they wear probably weighs fifty uh, percent uh, of their body weight. And spoiler alert, as has already been mentioned, she's also carrying a wedding dress, right? Uh, yeah, that's somewhere here. I mean, that's that's revealed definitely, but uh, it's revealed later. It's been taken. So care I'm of. just I'm putting that into the mix. Is she's also <laughs> got that in a like a bag over her shoulder or whatever? So, uh, yeah. So she takes her down the the uh, telescope of trickery or whatever. <laughs> the and Oscar's there waiting because he threw a pebble at their window. Um, so that's how they know. Uh, that he's ready for them. He's got a, his own coach to spirit them off to his uncle's uh, castle, which I think he he willed to him or just, you know, said, ah, I got a castle lying around. You can have it, man. Yes. And he, uh, I, I do like this detail. So this is the big escape moment. And you, you know the plot. The plot is hide under the bed and steal the key and release her. <laughs> and then when she faints, fireman carry her into Oscar Otwell's carriage, of her uncle's coachman, uh, and Oscar proceeded to handsomely reward his uncle's coachman, who drove them so quickly from Dunfern Mansion to Audley Hall, requesting him at the same time to treat the matter with profound silence. So that was just a nice, like, zoom-in picture of, like, we're getting all this action of, sure, carrying down the stairs and then, like, tipping the taxi guy. Yeah, he's <laughs> thumbing off some bills. 
Hey, look, I'd appreciate if you wouldn't mention. I, I work for your uncle, sir. Yeah. Is your, I, is your I wife still unconscious, else. sir? I, is that, honestly, I appreciate it, but you can bill me afterwards, and I will, you know, attend to this woman. I went as fast as I could, which is uh, the same as any other person could, because it's a horse, and that's pretty much what we have. So <laughs> the fact that I didn't slow down the horse doesn't earn me any extra money, but I'll take it. I'll take it. I, I've noticed you're trying to tip me in white claw, sir. I, I the college life has got the best of you. Brah, exploding fist as I say goodbye to you. Oh, All right? I, uh, I, my I, uncle's the best. I shall, yes. <laughs> yes. Do it so up there well, we go. sir. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, and the, I just like the, the detail of, of Irene uh, regaining consciousness was described thusly. The rescued form now opened her eyes, and suddenly a convulsive twitch shook her feeble frame. That's not good. <laughs> no. But then, casting her heavily laden orbs of blinded brilliancy around the cozy, well-lighted room, had not to be informed by anyone of what happened, she gasped, Thank heaven I'm safe. Ah, uh, that's a good sonic challenge. <laughs> Gasping. Gasping. Yeah. Thank heaven I'm safe! Boy, yeah, well... I pictured your heavily laden orbs of blinding brilliancy there. So that was good. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, she has made her big escape. There's been beds hidden under indigestion famed. It all seems uh, feigned. It all seems like a perfect opportunity to do some fanfic. And now I bet they bitching because my flow switching. Trying to tell me what to write. I bought some fanfiction. Can't they just be happy? I no longer have to face eviction that I'm living. All right. So this is real or fanfic. A crowd favorite segment here on 372. Uh, our listeners have crafted some diabolically clever fanfics. And we also have some real segments from later in Irene Idsley uh, that Mike will try to guess which are which. And as always, a lot of these uh, segments uh, of fanfic are sent in by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash 372 pages. We have a lot of fun over there. This week, uh, <laughs> we got to hear uh, one of your crackpot theories, Mike. I, uh... Turns out, not that crackpot, yeah, right? We got our listeners weighing in on your 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 theories of time. We'll, just, we'll tease that. And a lot, <laughs> I, t- I told Lauren yesterday we were talking about, uh, you know, on our our podcast about dumb books. Uh, somehow the discussion had had evolved into megaseconds <laughs> and decimal time, and she's like. What is a megasecond? Uh, you know what? You know what? Don't even please don't explain to me. Like <laughs> revising the calendar, re- revamping the Gregorian calendar, getting rid of it. It's obviously a joke. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's going on over there this week. Uh, but yeah, join us. You'll get every episode early. You can submit fanfic as well. We appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who supports it already. So here we go. Five segments here. Are you ready? Oh yeah. Someone had asked if we could if we could reveal it right away what do you think about that do you think it's better or worse uh, to, um i have no opinion on that like we, i i would do it okay i feel like we used to do it that way and then we changed for some reason yeah i think we did i'm gonna i'm gonna do it this way people can say what they think whether we should reveal it as soon as you say it or um because they think they, they had trouble remembering which was which but we'll do it the traditional way people can weigh in uh would you prefer the fan figure revealed after uh right after mike has guessed number one okay. With abject vicissitude, the penniless tutor bowed his head of shame and joined the rough-hewn and oafishly uncultured plebiscite on the Susquehanna River. His days were long <laughs> and hard, with the lowly work of the dire navy carting barrel-load after barrel-load of the vitaceous soil, not unlike County Kent of his youth. 
The life-giving globe of illumination and warmth radiated upon him for day after day, turning his silken skin of tutelage into the tan of the working man, and his slender limbs became like those of Simpson. Such was the fall of the educated man of knowledge, trampled down to the coarseness of the ox. <laughs> I love that they hooked on that uh, particular phrase. There's a whole bunch of them there. Uh, but that's, uh, that's fanfic. Okay. Number two. Fortunes, while giving the appearance of waxing, may in actuality be on the wane. And what would propel one speedily to the loftiest heights could indeed dash to the deadliest sharp-edged sword of calamity. And all effervescent hopes that once lay nestled securely within the peaceable den of an honest bosom be pierced forever with a swift terribleness. Such an end would soon be the experience of that peddler of phonology, the tutor Oscar Otwell, who had so recently wedded illicitly, she who was already the eternally joined of another, in the eyes of one a more glorious than any could hope to comprehend. <laughs> what is phonology? I don't know what that is. Uh, it's uh, phonology, like phone, like F H O. Oh, 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 phonology. Okay, it is. Uh... Um, I think that's fanfic too. Okay. Um, let's put the notes down. Let's do number three. The crushed hopes of an interview with the man she brought with head of bowed and battered bruises, of blasted untruths and astounding actions, to a grave of premature solitude, were further crumbled to atoms in an instant. They were driven beyond retention, never again to be fostered with feverish fancy. After the deplorable news of her rightful husband's death had been conveyed to the sly and shameless questioner who tried hard to balance her faintish frame unobserved, she asked an interview with Sir Hugh Dunfern. This also was denied on the ground of absence from home. Heavily laden with the garb of disappointment did the wandering woman of wayward wrong retrace her footsteps from the door forever and leisurely walked down the artistic avenue of carpeted care, never more to face the furrowed frowns of friends who in years gone by bestowed on her the praises of poetic powers. Forgetful almost of her present movements, the dangerous signal of widowhood was seen to float along the family graveyard of the Dunferns. My gosh, the cough was in there, right? Uh, yes, uh, the, yeah, that was uh, part of the text. The dangerous, <laughs> there's so many of those. Oh my gosh. Um, that was clever. I don't know. I'm going to say that's real okay. just because I probably have to say something's real. <laughs> uh, number four. In the common walks of life, with what delightful emotions does the youthful mind look forward to some anticipated scene of festivity? Imagination is busy, sketching rose-tinted pictures of joy. In fancy, the voluptuous votary of fashion sees herself amid the festive throng, the observed of all observers. Her graceful form, arrayed in snowy robes, is whirling through the mazes of the joyous dance. Her eye is brightest, her step is lightest in the gay assembly. Hmm. God, that's tough. I'm going to say, uh... I'm going to say fanfic. Okay. I have zero confidence <laughs> okay. today. And then the last one. Number five. Bride, etc., said Oscar, with a sneer meant only for his own satisfaction. But mark me, my dear lord, do not be too sure of her. She is a singular girl and of more independence than the generality of women. She will not think of your rank and station in, est in estimating you. She will think only of their owner. And pardon me if I suggest to you, who know the sex so well, on plan that it may not be unadvisable for you to pursue. Don't let her fancy you entirely hers. Rouse her jealousy. Pique her pride. Let her think you unconquerable. And unless she is unlike all women, she will want to conquer you. 
Hmm. Hmm. That is more unlike. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say that that's real because it's so oddly off. Okay, there we go. All right, you did well. You did well. Uh, let's reveal. Number one, this was the uh, man has educated man of knowledge trampled out of the coarseness of the ox, uncultured plebiscites on the Susquehanna River. You said fanfic. Yes. That was fanfic written by Jory. That was good. It was good, yeah. Uh, number two, this was uh, the end of the experience of that peddler of phonology. Uh, fortunes giving the appearance of waxing may actually be on the wane. You said fanfic. That was fanfic written by Matt N. Okay, two for two. Two for two. Uh, number three, uh, crushed hopes of an interview, bowed and battered bruises of blasted untruths and astounding actions, laden with disappointments, interviews with Sir Hugh Dunfern. I don't know who that is. You said real. That was real, submitted by John. Three for three. Three for three. Sir Hugh Dunfern, I guess, in mentioning a character we have no knowledge of could be a, I mean, a, a power move or just a, a giveaway. Is I that brother-in-law? Uh, Sir Hugh Dunfern? I feel like Dunfern? we've had multiple books with Sir Hughes. I don't know. I guess it is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Dunfern. Okay. Maybe that's the guy who comes to the door in the other one. Uh, number four. Uh, this was uh, The Common Walks of Life, Delightful Emotions, Voluptuous Votaries of Fashion, among thrust, festive throngs, you said fanfic. That was, it's not real. This was submitted by Craig, and it is a passage cribbed by none other than Mark Twain, who copied it verbatim what? from prose and poetry by a Western lady and included it in chapter 21 of Tom Sawyer, which makes it Twain curated fanfic, he says. Wow. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> very clever, very clever. Maybe a little too clever since you identified it as not being from Irene. So four for four. Four for four. Uh, alas, it all comes to an end with number Gosh, five. Okay. This uh, bride, etc. Mark me, my dear lord. Singular girl. You said real. It is, of course, not real, but it's not from Irene Idsley. It's also not strictly fan fiction, Carl said. It's from another famously bad book, Paul Clifford by Edward Bulwer-Layton, best known for its opening line, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. So, so it was real. So, <laughs> so it was, right. yeah, it was. it's real, just like the Mark okay. Twain one is real, it, uh, by the all definition. Right, or, right. game, oh, okay. it is not real. Four for five. Well done. Well, your best showing in a while. Yeah. Yeah, well, nice. Well, Sweet. Congratulations. That was good stuff. All right. So... Uh, did, uh, did it improve your... Uh, uh, impression of Mark, Mark Twain. Twain. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing there, but if he's, you know, if he, if he's, if he's laughing at this along with us, I, I think we probably would have enjoyed sitting down, uh, you know, watching the riverboats go by on the old Mississippi and, and laughing about Irene Idleslay with Mark Twain. I think I would have had a good time. What was the name? Of the uh, uh, <laughs> I'd be good about that. Idleslay. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, chapter 13 is where we're going to pick back up. Um, All right. This is a, it starts off, the opening paragraphs were not as solid this time around, but this, this paragraph, this chapter's opening paragraph is pretty amazing. It is, I, it's incredible. <laughs> it is astounding to view the smallest article through a magnifying glass. So that's less a fortune cookie, more just like a stoned guy. Uh, and then she gives us some examples. How large and lustrous an atom of silver appears. Okay. I mean, that. I'm sure that would well, be pretty cool to look I, at. I'm granting her the fact that an atom means not an atom. Yeah, like a small, you know, a small, very small amount, amount of silver. Uh, yeah, okay, but fair I'd, enough. I'd check that out. I bet, I bet it okay. reveals a lot to look at a, a mineral. Under. Sure. 
Good. Clear enough. All right. Continue. How fat and fair the withered finger seems. No. Huh? No. What? what? <laughs> uh, in a in a looking a magnifying glass. <laughs> so I, hey, Grandma, let me look at your withered finger. Oh my gosh! How, how fat and fair! And then she whacks you upside the head. Get out of here, weirdo! Right, yeah, and that's implying you have a grandmother. I mean, that could just be like, uh, oh yeah, we keep a. Uh, we keep this relic under a bell jar in the foyer. Uh, like, got me yeah. that withered finger that's been severed here the entire time. Yeah, like that toe that's in the uh, bottle of vodka in that bar <laughs> yeah. in Denver or whatever. <laughs> um, but it also reminded me of the, uh, we just did the Amityville uh, 4, the Evil oh, Escapes. Oh, yeah. There was withered fingers all over in yeah, that the, thing. The, the withering fingers seem to be the lamp's main power. Yeah. How monstrously mighty an orange... No. <laughs> so it's uh, what? you've got a you've got a microscope. The first thing you do is try to put a, an orange under there. You're like, "Oh boy, I fear the uh great great aunt Hortense's uh, imbecility has been passed down to this one. He's trying to look at an orange under a microscope." And also, I mean, everything look, we we understand how a magnifying glass works. Everything looks larger. Glass, how sorry. monstrously mighty an orange? Where you suddenly put it under the magnifying glass and you go, oh God! my God, this orange is gigantic. <laughs> I mean, that finger was fat and fair, but this is outrageous. What is happening? <laughs> like it's a slightly bigger orange. Calm right, down. yeah, yeah. Maybe you're revealing some detail in the, uh, the, you're seeing some of the citric acid like emerging up through the peel. But the, I mean, the mightiness, please, sure, overstate sure. it, sir. But then we get how immeasurably great the football of youth. <laughs> What? Talk about a a, a a a metaphor that would be a great uh, AMR book title: "The Football of Youth." <laughs> yeah, uh, is that's not a phrase, right? I don't know if she means. I, you know, I the, puzzled over that for like ten seconds. Going, is that a thing that I haven't heard? The great train of friendship, or whatever. The football of youth. I mean, I it's. I mean, uh, I don't know if footballs as we knew them existed in this time. So I, I'm not sure. I guess it could be a soccer ball that you're kicking around that you're looking at under a magnifying glass now. It's great. Let me bring it home for you, though. But these are as naught when the naked eye beholds the boulder of barred strength, M dash, a mountain of mystery. So it's a, a boulder, mm-hmm. but it's a mountain. <laughs> And do, am I still looking at the great football of youth? Because <laughs> yes. I'm still terrified by the mighty orange. Yeah, I mean... So what's what am I supposed to do now? i got to put this withered finger back under the bell jar because my dad will get angry if he, if he sees me messing <laughs> yes. with it. It's like that in his pocket it's knife a, are the two things I'm not allowed to touch. It's, it's a weird thing, but he paid a lot for it, if you can believe that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he hides it when his boss comes over. That's how weird it is. Like, he, he knows he shouldn't have it, but he still likes keeping it here. Well, what a chapter it, opening. It's amazing. Holy yeah. cow. Just, just, I mean, maybe magnifying glasses had just been invented, and she was, like, trying to, like, you know, intimate that her, her husband had bought her one as their ninth anniversary gift. <laughs> yeah, I've got and, one. And, it's not a big deal. I just look at oranges and fingers right. under it. And let's remember that she, uh, when we opened this, uh, when we introduced this book, that she was, uh, she hated her critics mm-hmm. and she, she lashed out at them. <laughs> so when people laughed at prose like this, she would go like, you don't know. Yeah. 
you yeah you you're sicko like yeah you get uh you know pulitzer prizes probably didn't exist then but uh you know i'm better because i can speak to the people yeah because people know when you look at an orange under a magnifying glass it becomes mighty you wish you had some of these footballs of youth that i've got twain (laughs) plus plus i also know you want to bang you're never gonna see these footballs yeah Uh, anyway uh, solid truth it's amazing and then we get another amazing roman and it's revealed that i believe the escape happened on christmas eve and so christmas morning is when everyone notices irene and marjorie are missing so this may be this may sort of rock you on your heels a bit because this is kind of a quirky opinion but uh irene idisley is uh, technically a christmas book like you could have it on your shelf up there with the grinch and night before so it's just kind of a quirky opinion i like to have uh, Not a lot of people right, have ever so, made this point before. So we'll put it with a uh, hot dog sandwich. <laughs> and uh, yes, this is the greatest hey. Christmas book ever. <laughs> hot take from Connor. Thank you. I agree. It is a great, um, it is a Christmas. It qualifies by every right. thing. There that, you go. Uh, hey, right? yeah. Yes. You'd be, have to be weird to put up an argument about it. So I'm just going to keep asserting this, hoping that someone eventually does. So... Speaking of the, uh, you know, the escape of, uh, what's his name in um, Shawshank Redemption? Oh, Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne. When the, I, I think that is uh, Stephen King, brilliant, brilliant thing of like doing the whole, the plot moves along with a whole secret plot that you don't know. And then it's revealed in that astounding moment when he throws a rock through the thing and you hear that. You know, even in the book, uh-huh. I think it's done the same way. Maybe he pokes like a poker through it or something. Sure. But uh, great, great reveal. Wow. There was another thing going on here. This is <laughs> this is astonishing as they realize she's gone is that they have breakfast. They call for her. They call for Marjorie. They don't hear her. And then like five paragraphs of then he ate breakfast because <laughs> he normally ate it at nine. But now it was Christmas, so he ate at nine fifteen. <laughs> you can just picture that, like done again in the same thing. It was like the astonishing reveal of this amazing escape. Yeah, is like him eating a waffle and going, uh, "Is Marjorie around? Uh, I haven't heard from her." And then, how do you, son? What did your like, mother think of the Christmas present on your annual visit? She wasn't there. What? <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to uh, scoop out the rest of my grapefruit, and then I'll get to the bottom of this dastardly deed. <laughs> but it's even so. We had a moment in this in that Amityville show because they, you know, in a movie, like they 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 look at this room where their daughter's supposed to be, and she's like trashed it because she's possessed, and the camera just sort of pans from one side of the room to the other, and we just had the line that takes her a long time to look at a room because um, mm-hmm. obviously, as a as a normal person, you'd look into a room within a second realize that no one's there and move on. But this that's what they do in this book, depositing it upon the table. She swiftly turned to the door and locking it from within began to gaze around for Lady Dunfern, who sometimes yes. breakfasted in bed. So she's beginning to gaze around, which takes about a half a second to realize someone's not breakfasting in bed. But we get that as the, uh, that's, that's how they finally realize she's gone for good. That's what I wondered when they said that the room was actually sort of spacious Oh. Is is she walking into like a basketball court and there's a, <laughs> and there's a bed in one corner? There's a and, and she, over there. Uh, yeah, and maybe she 
fluffed her pillow up and put a coconut in there to make her look. And so she's like, is that her breakfasting over there? I'll be there in a minute. I'll find out. <laughs> yeah, the walk-in closet. Uh, you know, that's Maybe that's why they described the hook that they hung the gun on as being over yonder. Yonder, there you go. So, yeah, so she then she throws herself down on the floor to look under a cabinet or something. Yeah, or, uh-huh. To like, well, she's not there either. Like, did she normally do that? <laughs> I mean, I guess you would if you've been in there for a couple of sure, years. Sure, yeah, like, if insanity gets to you and you start becoming an imbecile yourself, so. Yeah, and she probably at some points was, I mean, let's be honest, she was probably pooping into her hands <laughs> and throwing it at Rachel. I mean, you have nothing else to do, Sure, right? yeah, exactly. Um well, then she, uh, she, Rachel runs back to, uh, out of the room, and then she runs to Marjorie's room. Failing to be admitted, she hurried down to acquaint some of the men who attempted to open Marjorie's door, but all their masculine efforts to arouse her were futile. Oh, well. Mm, little Christmas miracle, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this amounts to a lot of like, uh, Benny Hill running up and down stairs as they knock on each door and like, she's not there. Like what? And then Sir John going, it's you, you did this, you know, she's not there. But Rachel is just absolutely distraught at this escape. Uh, Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, because it was the most cunning escape. It's like (laughs) the great escape, right? You know, the movie with, uh, uh, all the stars that that was not successful, but they did get some people out. Okay. Um, but the, the aftermath is a big part of the movie because most people are caught and shot Jeez. or whatever. Um, but this one is, it's just like uh, the, the realization of it is quite stunning. Like my wife is gone. <laughs> like, yeah, that should have happened in week one. Right. You yes, exactly. My wife is gone now. I took her a year to escape. Wow. I mean, I had the under. Wow. And he's like, what? It cannot be. What did I ever do? Kind of a reaction. <laughs> his his reaction is, this is amazing. Summoning all his men, he ordered them to go at once and intimate to the officers of the law the sudden flight of the miscreants. So, you know, they're like, hey, hey, officer. Uh, my wife's missing. Oh, dear God. Like, what, what, what was the situation? Well, I locked her up in a tower for a year, and then she escaped. Well, sir, now, now you're under arrest. You've, <laughs> you've held, your, <laughs> held your wife hostage in a, in a room without a toilet in it? You're a monster. Uh, might I remind you, sir, that this is 1884. Uh, oh, 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 that's right. Very well. Okay. Yes. Go yes. retrieve so your property. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he, uh, is distraught by this obviously he appeared greatly crushed under such a weight of sorrow and wondering whether or not they could be found or if oscar otwell he so often wrote to his wife who so often wrote to his wife during her period of imprisonment had ought to do with her daring adventure so it's like yeah you know if if the guy keeps writing to your wife and you're you know in- intercepting all her email all her mail it's essentially on you if you're not like going and kicking his ass right I think he would have gotten suspicious. Hey, knock it off, man. Like, <laughs> it's it's literally my wife. Like, you, you can't be doing this. And again, it's hey, 1884, you, uh, so there's, like, vague concepts of honor around this whole thing, so. Right, so he, he drives down, well, he takes his coach down. His coachman drives him to the college. He's like, hey, uh, which one is Johnson Hall? Uh <laughs> Hey, do you guys know some guy named Otwell? Like, oh, big yeah, O, for, yeah, oh, man. Yeah. He's in the uh he he's uh playing ping pong right now. 
<laughs> like slap his paddle out of his hand. Listen, asshole. Yeah. Stop writing letters to my wife. I want you just, to stop you know, writing to her for four weeks. And then if that hasn't taken two more weeks after that. All right, man. Look, I'm just. Bro, uh, bro. You know, come on. Bro code here. Back down, you know. I'm RAing. I'm tutoring a few people. I think it's kind of vague. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to achieve right. them great success. <laughs> what? Come on. I got, if, you, if, you, if you if you get my uncle to, to scuttle this internship, man, that was my summer gig. Oh, don't make me leave for four to six weeks. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I like that there was a. Uh, this is the only time I've ever encountered this outside of my, my the the den in my grandparents' house. Uh, Sir John opens a large Davenport. Oh yeah. The, uh, when, when we would, uh, when we would stay at my grandmother's house, the, that's where we would sleep. She would open up the Davenport for us, which she meant a couch. So it was, uh, it was delightful to see that this book from 1897 was using the same, was using the same slang terms as her. I, I neglected to mention, cause I'm certain I brought it up on this podcast. Yeah, I think I've my, talked about my grandmother's. Too. But I neglected to mention the Davenport as being one of her. <laughs> because I, I think it was, uh, uh, you know, wipe your face with a flannel. Okay. Put on a pullover. Uh, grab something from the frigid air or the ice, ice box, box yep. depending upon her day. And what was her other one? Uh, but anyway, yes, Davenport was included <laughs> yeah. in that. Yeah, it's delightful. And uh, Let's bring it back. Yeah, I like Davenport. Was that a brand name? It must have been. Yeah, it's capitalized. Uh, and then we'll throw in um, Counterpane from uh, Moby Dick, as you were Okay, yes. Which is a blanket. <laughs> Counterpane. All right. Back to the uh, needlessly specific insane coincidences that make up the uh, back half of this, uh, of this episode. So Sir John is paralyzed with sorrow over this escape. And so he immediately, uh, as you would do, writes... To Dr. O'Sullivan, the president of the college where Oscar Otwell was, you know, is playing beer pong, who in youthful years was Sir John's most intimate acquaintance. So his best friend is the guy who told him, who told Oscar to take off four weeks and then maybe two more. And then, sure. so that's an insane detail, an insane needless coincidence. Then we get this uh, immediately after it. And whose name appeared so often in Oscar's letters. So they immediately top this insanity because Oscar was writing her these uh, heart-sick love letters for the better part of a year. And he's just often talking about his boss. <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine what the content of that was. I guess it would have been like, man, I was, I was partying with my dudes, you know. <laughs> I was just tearing it up. We were just like ripping it a new one this one night. And then like Dr. O was like... Hey guys, could you knock it off? We gotta, you know, we have to study philosophy. Yeah. We have to study Immanuel Kant in the morning. Like, oh yeah, buzzkill, man. Henley Burke's house. <laughs> yeah, or he's like, you know, should I? He he's 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 written, you know, should shall I compare thee to a summer's day? But he he scratched out, shall I compare thee to Doctor O'Sullivan and replace it with summer's day? Just as it was his his first instinct wasn't as good for the love letter department. <laughs> It's appeared so often. Um, but let me ask you this, because I think this is a little before that. Uh, this is, I think, Sir John coming to the realization. Never dreaming that this overlook on her part was so cleverly taken. Notice of was never. 
Oh my God, this is so hard. <laughs> I can't even read it. Okay. Never dreaming that this overlook on her part was so cleverly taken notice of by her who not alone committed the raffinious act, but caused all the blame to be thrown on the party in charge. Uh. All right. Ignore everything else and tell me, can you be charged in court with a Ruffinius act? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he, he calls him, a, it's a Ruffinius act. He calls Oscar a rascal and a vagish tutor. So, <laughs> Oh, well, those are all punishable by law. <laughs> yeah, no, one count of Ruffinius act. Okay, where do I pay the fine? Punishable by death. Like, whoa, 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 what? I forgot, it's 1884. <laughs> Uh, but he, uh, he, the college professor immediately informs him of his weird four to six. He's like, oh yeah, I told him to take off for four weeks, uh, six if he needs it. (laughs) Um, and, but he says he has no idea where Oscar has gone to. So like his, his first lead being so weird and needlessly specific, uh, immediately hits a dead end. Yes. And then uh, that provokes this reaction, which it's good to have a reminder every now and then. Uh, Sir John blurts out, God strengthen me to bear this unchristian-like calamity. Oh, my son, my son, what disgrace shall this not bring upon you, my child, my all? So it's good that he's, uh, he's, he remembers his son on this, on this Christmas day. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did that because that was I was going to give you that sonic challenge oh. to make that sound convincing and, you know. Done and done, sir. Oh, they're good. So, I think well, so. Yeah, that well was uh, that was a uh, Patrick Stewart performance, I think, uh, of a of a British guy. And just jumping back one paragraph, I think this is how every obvious thing should be stated from here on out. Um, you know, something that like the sky is blue, mm-hmm. the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Oscar Otwell is a ruffian. Yes. It is no longer an unsolved problem that Oscar Otwell was from first to last the chief irritating item of Sir John Dunfern's unhappiness and whose supposed underhand communications with Lady Dunfern were the principal features depicted in this escape. Oh, for certain, yes. That's like uh, <laughs> It is no longer an unsolved problem. It is no longer what? Wow. It is no longer an unsolved problem. <laughs> That Oscar Otwell was from first to last the chief irritating item. Wow, that should have been in the Constitution. Solve that problem, like, yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't had a good uh, uh, an amendment in a long time. That could be your next crackpot theory. There we Put go. In there. Um, so he calls in Rachel and fires her, and just absolutely lashes out. He says, "I never wish again to set eyes on such a worthless woman." And then he calls in uh, his footman, Tom Hepworth, which is very funny. We get that. That's the first time he's mentioned. We get his full name, who shakes like a poplar before he gets fired as well. And then he says, it no doubt caused Sir John a vast amount of pain to part with two such helps as Rachel Hyde and Tom Hepworth. But once he formed a resolution, nothing save death itself would break it. And I just, I don't know. It, it always amuses me when we get these characters who get introduced, we're told we'll never see them again because they're fired, but we get their full name. It's, yes. it's like that Jim Dalen tactic of, uh, from, yes. from Ghost House. Uh, but I think it's funny that she says in her defense, uh, or she's running it through her mind, Rachel, that is, like, wow, what did I do wrong? Like, oh, that's right. For the last week, I left the drawer with the key open Whereas normally I close it, 
But she's like, I can't believe that anyone would notice that. And then she goes, dope. She noticed that. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. That's like all she has to do. I, I guess. I'm sorry. They were on the express train of friendship. So that's that covers that. <laughs> True. I, and it was Christmas. That's was... how she excuses it. She's like, well, you know, it was pretty much Christmas. So I was having to, you know, it just I was so distracted because they won't stop playing that damn Mariah Carey song. And I forgot to lock up the key. <laughs> Yeah, they're playing George Michael. <laughs> um, All right, that's the uh, yeah that's the last 13. thing of that chapter. I have Tom and Rachel in less than an hour after their man- master issued his words of censure and dismissal, left the beautiful home of such lengthy shelter in which they had shared their help so willingly to plow the field of adventure on which they now might wander. Which is yeah, yeah. Tom, plow that field of adventure. <laughs> Woo. It's just a good thing to say. Uh, it's like a "you can't fire me, I quit." Being like, no, no, I, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to, you know, plow the field of adventure. So that's why I'm, I'm glad that they fired me for stealing uh, bottles of hot sauce from the, uh, from the on the border restaurant I was working at. <laughs> yeah, says an an actor uh, jokingly told me once, like, no, you're never. Uh, n- you know, out of work, you are currently at liberty, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so between jobs. Yeah, thanks, man. No, I'm free to do whatever I want. Do you have a job? I mean, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of free, that's how Chapter 14 starts. Uh, uh, Irene awakens on Christmas Day. She now felt... Who? Irony. Thank you. She now felt free to act as though... She thought best without undergoing an examination which demanded answers of evasive tact, free from the hovering cloud of dislike, free from the wild gaze of the detestable of mortals, Rachel Hyde, who proved as false as she was foul, free from reposing on the suicidal couch of distrust and distress, free from the surveillance of a so-called philanthropist, and free from the traps of tyrannical power. We get it. I think they're letting on that she feels free at this moment. I'm going to do a word search on free. I've, I've feel most of them would be clustered around that's this paragraph. Point. But Speaking of George Michael, that's more freeze than Freedom 90. It is pretty funny that, so Rachel, I guess if you were going to do a movie, I don't know, I'll cast my mind back to uh, Nurse Ratchet, you know, from uh, mm-hmm. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's her, you know, the captain. Okay. She's uh, icy, but sort of weirdly, like she's got this charisma, like, ah, I love her, but I hate her. Uh-huh. It's so awful. It's just funny that after the fact, Rachel Hyde is like the the detestable of mortals. Yeah, a worthless woman. <laughs> I mean, she was depicted as like, look, she's loyal to this guy, so she does it. I mean, that that speaks to a you know pretty low character that she would lock a woman in a room. But we don't really <laughs> true, get any true. picture of her. And then all of a sudden, she's the, free from the wild gaze of that detestable of mortals. So like, she's this beast, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. She's, she's Kathy Bates in misery or something. Like she's carrying around her sledgehammer. And, uh, I thought it was pretty, uh, good though. I mean, she, she did this job for a week without, uh, I mean, for a year without anything happening. So like <laughs> 300 one out of 365 days, something bad goes wrong. And now she's a worthless woman. Like, that's a harsh. That's a harsh uh, criteria. Yeah, she didn't give her. I mean, he didn't give her a lot of backup, right? No. Like, hey, and we also get, by the way, no picture of what Sir John did during the year plus imprisonment. Right. Was he? Did he ever visit or care? 
did he ever like bring the son to the door and go like you get three minutes to ask him if he's uh, still pooping his diapers or <laughs> we get hey, no too, picture son. of that uh no yeah absolutely nothing i mean i guess it's you know it's not his book so he's just sort of a a character who's there to imprison her um but yeah i don't know how he makes his money like i mean hopefully his mortgages aren't going upright like her parents were I mean, is he going to a, a tavern and he's got a bunch of friends? And what's what's going on with you, yeah, Sir John? You, you've been yeah. pretty quiet. <laughs> you, she doesn't come around these days. Yeah, she wasn't at like, the last trivia night or anything. Yeah, I haven't seen her at... Uh, we were doing that fundraiser thing for the uh, local children's hospital. And uh, she was volunteering. Where is she? I got a lock, just locked up in a tower. It's, uh, hey, well, ne- next round on me. Uh, <laughs> you said you had her locked up in a tower? Is that... Hmm. Oh, look at that kite. That guy's using that kite to scare away those birds. Holy (laughs) crap. He's sending notes up of it. Um, But so it turns out that we get another sort of I've made a huge mistake moment. Sure. Because uh, when she she wakes up, and I think they very quickly realize that, like, the life of an unemployed tutor is not exactly the, like, baller lifestyle that she was used to. (laughs) <laughs> it says yeah and she had no idea he so he was given oddly hall mm-hmm. oddly by his uncle know. yes yeah uh but they no idea is that like does that make money do you make money from a hall, from owning a hall from, <laughs> yeah I, I guess not because you know he was doing a job so he he he's now not doing that anymore because i think he's a wanted man essentially but it says uh, she had recently fled from a dungeon. Still, it was not one of either starvation or poverty. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is like buried the lead there. Like, how how was it? <laughs> Whilst occupying its darkened midst, she never had any cause for complaint regarding food or attendance, <laughs> both of which could not possibly have been excelled. Yeah, she was at the Four Seasons. Right, it's the. For her to start complaining as soon as she moves in with him is an amazing thing, considering she was literally a prisoner for over a year. <laughs> that is amazing. It, it, it's the uh, uh, it's the Israelites being freed from slavery. Like, why don't you complaining to Moses? Bring us back to slavery. Yeah. That would be better than this. I was going to say, is she going to just like you know do a George Costanza and show up the next day at Sir John's castle, being like acting like nothing has happened? Yes. <laughs> But yeah, that's amazing. So every, so every two hours was she going like, um, can I uh, fill the champagne glass? <laughs> uh, is your is your pheasant to your taste? It was a bit overdone, wasn't it? Let me bring you a new plate. Yeah. She's looking at Oscar's, you know, bucket, being like, this isn't as nice as the bucket I was crapping in when I was a prisoner. I, uh, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rachel was uh, was way nicer, even though her gaze was pretty detestable. <laughs> And speaking of gazes, it says only when staring at her lover's scanty table fully that thoughts of any nature save cruelty haunted her and caused a sad expression to appear, which before seemed invisible. So like, yeah, she's just she's open to the door. She's greeting Rachel with a big old smile. She drops off her, uh, you know, suckling pig. And then uh, but only until she sees, you know, uh, Oscar's Bob Cratchit spread here, coughing into this sad little goose that she starts to seem sad. Right. <laughs> so, and nothing about the fact that um, you know they uh, they made love for weeks on end, yeah. like they could not get enough of one another. It's immediately like, oh, 
this um this is breakfast huh like some uh I'll just microwave this oatmeal packet that you obviously <laughs> stole from the college yeah. commissary. And you'll be doing what today? Oh, sitting around the house where you claim you uh, have no situation, huh? Just perusing the the want ads and the advertisements in the leading uh, journals. You, yeah, they're ev- you. Uh, you tip that coachman uh, maybe too much. <laughs> uh, could have you could use that money right now, um, but uh, no, that's fine. I'll. I'll eat this apple core here. Yeah. If I cared about him, if, big if, major if, major hypothetical here, if I cared about my son, uh, you would be nowhere near able to provide for him the way that the guy I just uh, left does. So just think about that, Oscar. Oscar's uh, finishing up his bowl of oatmeal, and he goes, son? (laughs) Hasn't hasn't really come up before, huh? Weird. Think. I oh, thought that would have been right. something you'd maybe want to secret out with you, because we do have should, a. Uh, should we go back? I, my coachman's outside. No, nah. we we booked we booked three tickets on the Delwyn ship to New York, and uh, I don't see uh, unless you're able to you know rub those two tickets together like a magician and produce a third one. Uh, I don't see you being able to afford one for our son, even at the kids' rate. It's it's amazing. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> uh, and. We we get I, th- I don't know if this was the one that was in fanfic, but I'm going to read it anyway just in case. But it says it was at this stage too that Lady Dunfern was made to taste of the dish of fanciful wish in which she often dipped her slender fingers to sprinkle oh her God. body of dishonesty. So I think we've covered this before. Slenderness does not necessarily imply long, but they're cut from the same cloth. Yeah, I I had that just as a, a hedge as one of my dumb sentences. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I remembered it from that, but yeah. <laughs> And so they decide to sell the castle because they right just just like her uh, adoptive parents do right, yeah. sell everything. The shaft of poverty still kept striking the inmates of Audley Hall, so they're inmates now too. I guess they really can't go anywhere because people are looking for Oscar. And this brings mm-hmm. us to just another insane coincidence. The purchaser was rather an elderly gentleman with chiseled features, tall and straight, and seemed to have borne the melting heat of a far-off climb to a large extent. He informed Oscar that being a retired Armory pensioner named Major Idsley, he chose to leave the foreign land in which he sojourned for upwards of 35 years and resided in his native county, adding that he was a widower, having had two sons, both of whom predeceased him, and preferred a home of his own rather than take up quarters he could not solely claim. He went on to say he had an only brother, a colonel. He and his wife had long since been dead, leaving an only daughter of whom he was now in earnest pursuit. So it's Irene's uncle who wants to buy their castle. She, of course, can't reveal who she is because she's a fugitive. Who who put him in touch? Dr. O'Sullivan, Oscar's boss and John's childhood best friend. So there's, you know, approximately seven people in this universe of this book. But the beauty is, so these are the movers of the plot, and this is the huge coincidences uh but uh rachel hyde and tom hepworth are are more (laughs) (laughs) they get full names and stories they actually probably get more words than this dumbass (laughs) who comes to buy them (laughs) it's so good yeah but it's also like you know oscar's uncle has got to be like you know hey how's that castle i gave you holding up you did what (laughs) Just like the most worthless, you know, fail son type of thing you could do. Like, um, just, just immediately say, it's like, well, you know, that's it's more of an investment. You know, having a castle is a, is a pretty good thing to like hedge your fortune on going forward and you immediately sell it. 
Like, you're not even paying yes. off the closing costs at this point in time, you dumbass. Uh, this is her uh, not revealing her uh, care, you know, not revealing herself to him moment. But I like the the phrasing of this. She had not, however, the slightest thought of making him cognizant of the fact that she was the proud and lovely daughter of his brother, the late Colonel Idsley. Yeah. The once adored wife of the widely respected and generous owner of Dunfern Estate, and now the tempted tool of emigration. Nice. Tempted tool of I mean, emigration. That's... Not a phrase you're going to run into in a lot of books. Yeah. I got to give her that. Out of the shaft of poverty are uh, striking hard here. The shaft of poverty, <laughs> the plowman of whatever. <laughs> Pismo Beach. Uh, she realizes, uh, but she, yeah, so she understands who he is and just like, uh, he leaves and goes back to the university and then they sail to New York on the, on the Delwyn or whatever it was called. And then quickly, they're in Dobbs Ferry. <laughs> which I thought was very funny because that's a real place. Oh, wow. Uh, I looked it up. Some miles distant from the suburbs of New York. Okay. So... That would, you could just say some miles distant from New York, sure, right? Work, and yep. still be accurate. <laughs> so I just appreciated the fact that, okay, just, I'm going to go, I'm going to put my mind to the suburbs and then I'm going to go some miles from that. Okay. Got it. That's how far it was. Right. Yeah. And the suburb of New York in this uh, day and age must've been still a pretty uh, remote thing. So I think they're just saying this is the sticks or something. I guess so. Yeah. But, the suburbs being like what? Wall Street at the time. Uh, yeah, right. But they still, you know, it's it's still, even though they're out in the country, they manage to have a uh, a wedding that attracts a charming group of wealthy sightseers and warm admirers. Which, you know, mm-hmm. I guess that was just what you did back then. You, uh, you, you heard there was a wedding happening, and so you're wealthy, so you decide to go and, and, and look at it. <laughs> and they don't know these people from Adam? Yeah, they've been there a month, and it's in a weird town of Dobbs Ferry, so it's, you know, they're wealthy. They're obviously... Uh, Manhattanites, and that's just a uh, honey. Like, let's go check out the uh, the Dobbs Ferry wedding scene. I heard a uh, a guy named Oscar was marrying uh, someone with an unpronounceable name. <laughs> honey, you know I only like to go to weddings in the suburbs of New York. Make an Please exception this time, or else you're going okay. in the tower, <laughs> right. which is legal. <laughs> and then, yeah, it ends with her, spite wearing the wedding dress. That she had refused to wear on the actual wedding, which Marjorie had had smuggled out of the house in the first place and then brought on the boat with them. How did she do that? It was never addressed until right now. <laughs> it was, I guess, her big steamer trunk that she had all the you know stickers of the places she had visited. That was what she filled it up with. So the if we could cut back to the escape, you know, if this was like a uh, you know sliding doors kind of thing where. She's carrying the steamer trunk with like a wedding dress in it. She's got uh, she's got her mistress in one arm. She's also like with her teeth. She's like carrying the, well, these are the champagne <laughs> we're going to have at the wedding. Yeah. Like, God. <laughs> so because that was the last time she was in the hall, right? Um, yeah. Well, well, when they left she to move in. Yeah, she to didn't get go the back we- to, I mean, someone else owns to that. To get right? the wedding like, dress. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. They, so that's, that's just amazing that she... Uh, secreted it out I, I guess <laughs> uh yeah well i think that's that that brings us to the end she had just uh she they got married she wore the dress and we're we're left to to wonder what might happen in the final third of the book 
Uh, my final sentence to read, which I think will, uh, I think everyone will appreciate that if you're not reading along, this is what we have to deal with. Why it's puff. Let me start again. Yeah. Dang it. Why it's puffs of pearly wealth surrounded her well formed figure on the celebration of her marriage with him who long ago should have claimed its shining folds may be considered mysterious. <laughs> But in this, as well as many other instances, the busy brain of Marjorie Mason was prime mover. Wow. Do you have any idea what that means? No. Uh, I mean, it's just a kudos to Marjorie. She has a busy brain and is not a wretched woman. So, Wyatt's puffs of pearly wealth surrounded her. May be considered mysterious. That certainly is mysterious because I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. It literally about. fits the definition. Um, it may be considered mysterious. It is mysterious. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Well, a lot happened. A daring escape, bed hiding under, fake diarrhea. It's uh, the book delivered and more. Oh, man. Carrying uh, carrying women along with dresses yes. down corridors. Lost jumping uncles, into neglected sons. Coachmen speeding along and getting tipped handily for their work. I mean, it... Uh, this delivered. Yeah. I, I loved this fantastic. second reading. Well, let's explore amazing. what some other of our listeners' dumb sentences were this time. A sentence begins with a capital letter. A capital letter is a letter that's big. A capital letter is not a small letter. A capital letter is big, big, big. All right. A these are the dumb sentences of the week. We have uh, just a few that were not burned already. We had a lot of people who were fans of uh, settling down to the slumberland or whatever uh divesting herself of clothing type of things <laughs> oh yes okay. but uh we do have a few more that people uh, have sent in uh this first one is from theodore when dreading the light of day contentment hath fled imagination often provides a proves a forerunner to realty corners of horror shelter themselves within the castles of the queenly the palaces of the powerful the monuments of the mighty and the cottages of the caretaker but sunshine brings universal joy wherever it beams are wont to dazzle and often allays the anxiety which precedes its appearance he said yep. settle all the way down and then invent a way to settle down even more <laughs> <laughs> this one is from mike the husband so this is uh he's just realized sir john has realized uh, he's been betrayed the husband paralyzed with sorrow Instantly wrote to Dr. O'Sullivan, the president of the college. And Mike said, if he instantly took action, he wasn't paralyzed literally or metaphorically. <laughs> uh, this one's from Amanda. The smallest hand of her little timekeeper could not fail to show that the hour of 11 had just been reached. Mm. All that to say, it's 11 o'clock. <laughs> My God. Uh, this one's from Jeffrey. He just he submitted, oh, my son, my son. He said, it's not flashy, but it is the first time they've mentioned the kid since his birth. Otherwise, up to this point, I figured he died and she forgot to tell us, which I'm not still ruling that out. I think that could definitely happen. Oh, wow. Bold prediction. <laughs> uh, and then this was from Arthur. She could hardly refrain from tears as she viewed the weary night before through the telescope of trickery. And he said, oh, he said, it's not nearly as convoluted as it could have been, but the phrase telescope of trickery sticks with me because it sounds like a gag product you'd buy from Ron uh, Weasley's brothers who ran the joke shop. <laughs> 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 it is pretty uh, JK-ish in terms of the uh, just uh, pointless alliteration. Yeah. Did you have any that were not? Oh, I had a bunch, but it would just tax the listener. So uh, 
let me just this is a thing that she did a couple times so not exactly a dumb sentence but dumb uh, phrase the thoughts which she allowed to disturb her anxious mind she found were very numerous <laughs> she found well who else would find <laughs> her own thoughts <laughs> they she the thoughts that she allowed to disturb her anxious mind Hank found very numerous. You know, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, she did that a decent amount. I, I had it highlighted, and just we didn't have enough time. But she would do stuff like the pebble was thrown by he who was there to rescue her. She goes to like great length not to use someone's name. She instead says like he of her uh, past romantic relationship who now you know entered on a dark steed to. It's like it's Oscar. Yes. Say Oscar. That's the name. Oh, here's another a version of it. I have earlier. Uh, and then I have a bunch of dumb sentences, but all they're all dumb. Yeah. So I'll just I'll I'll go with this. It may be mentioned that Marjorie Mason visited the same plot of ground at the same hour every available morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Sure. Go ahead and mention it. It's your <laughs> yes, book. Yes. It may be mentioned because you're mentioning it. <laughs> I, it's such a bizarre phrase. Yeah. I think that was where it was sort of like people. She's like, oh well, when Mark Twain reads this, that horny bastard who wants me in the sack, he's going to be yeah. like, oh, but like, why is uh, why is you know, why does this need to happen? So she went back and sort of edited it in real time to mention that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what do you have? Do you have? I have sentence? one. Yeah, we didn't talk about it. I had two. They're just both long and convoluted. Let's do this one. This is Oscar um, not understanding that people like are against him for robbing someone of his lawful property, a.k.a. his wife. Did he, by his various attempts to enter the minds of the needy, ever think to solicit their assistance or gain their confidence by tearing asunder the lawful bond of superficial union and right, casting it upon the sieve of shattered shelter to separate the corn of crowded comfort from the chaff of crafty want? <laughs> I... I think I did a spit take when I read that <laughs> sentence. Like, oh my God, corn and chaff. Three metaphors in, in one uh, one thing. It's like a political cartoon where you're like pointing to, you know, the guy has to label things because it's so unclear. Right. This is immigration policy and this is, you know, whatever, NAFTA. All right, uh, one more because it's short and it's uh, the, uh, the weird passiveness, but, but also the confusion. Advertisements were often seen. That's a great start. Advertisements were often seen in the leading journals for a situation, and once the name Oscar Otwell appeared below. Yeah. Can you? Is there a worse way to write that sentence? I cannot. Like at every turn, the sentence gets worse. <laughs> Adver advertisements were often seen. Yeah, that's great. Passive voice doing a a lot of heavy lifting. In the leading journals, okay, for a situation. Yeah, situation, it, I, I intuited that to mean, like, jobs. Like, as it said... Yeah, it, it means job, yeah. but four advertisements were often seen for a job. Yeah. And once the name Oscar Otwell appeared below... So was that a wanted ad? Oscar once wrote... <laughs> w once answered a wanted ad. Okay, yeah. I guess. Right. But that is... That is a punishing sentence. And like, you know, this is, they're, they're in abject poverty because of this. So is she just sitting down to her, her packet of oatmeal and then she looks up and he's, he's got a stack of the leading journals there. It's like, well, you know, maybe, maybe dial back a few of those journals. They can't all be leading and uh, put some more food on the table. Oh, oh. I wonder if she was, uh, you know, really haranguing him and like, you know, 
uh, you know, you, you, you keep tipping your, uh, the coachman, but, uh, I still can't eat. And he's like slowly just pushing the uh, leading journal across the table to her, like, uh, <clears throat> tapping. Or one. he wets his, uh, Oh, great. Your name once appeared below a wanted. <laughs> he licks his pencil and just makes a big show of circling the ads he's going to apply for. <laughs> Um, oh, that's the dumb man. sentences. We are going long, but I would read one email. We're going to the party. We're going to the game. We're going to the dinner. Ain't gonna cruise out, man. We're stealing people's mail. So yeah, not a lot of time for emails this week, but this one I just wanted to go out with. Well, we, we read Aaron's email about the game, so we'll we'll share that with everybody. This one, though, I uh, has a uh, subject line that was good enough that I, I wanted to include. It's from Jory. Really boring stuff about the state of agriculture and the real estate market in the United Kingdom and Ireland in the late 19th century. So you can you can move on, everyone, if you don't want to hear this. But it does give some, some interesting backstory towards the situation. The Dilworths are victims of the Great Depression of British Agriculture, 1873 through 1896, caused by the importation of cheap American grain. By the end, agricultural land was almost worthless. As agrarian landowners with no investments in industry, the Dilworths getting bankrupt makes perfect sense. And then he says, and but what about the auction with numerous bidders but low offers? Well, <laughs> the Earl of Cavan's estate, including a manor house and 2,000 acres of land in Ireland, was auctioned off in 1888 with a starting bid of 1,000 pounds. A huge crowd gathered to watch the proceedings because auctions were considered great entertainment back then. So I guess, yeah, that's... That's the the couple mm-hmm. going out to the beyond the New York suburbs to watch a wedding of a stranger. It says, sure. when the auction began, all hell broke loose. People heckled, laughed, and shouted the auctioneer down, joked about the hostility of the peasants, made ridiculously low bids, and generally ruined the whole proceedings. In the end, the sale price was 630 pounds, or $150K, $115,000 in U.S. dollars 2021, a third less than the supposed starting bid. So that's what happened, I guess. That's the... The real uh, event of the the low bids, uh, although they were numerous. So that's less boring uh, than I thought it would be based on the subject line. Those are both fairly interesting. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the, uh, what is it? Grain and mill insurance that we just did <laughs> yeah, in our yeah, live show. Yeah, you got to have that. In that, in that uh, safety short, that was who sponsored it, the uh, insurers of grain and mill insurance. <laughs> I'm sure it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Silo explosions, yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, that is fascinating. I, in my youth, because my dad would look for, we were in high school. We had a uh, like what would be considered a hobby farm, mm-hmm. like eighty acres, and he's like, I should get a tractor. But you know, you know, where do you go to get a tractor? So we would drive to an auction, yeah. a farm auction. I have to say that was some of the most fun. <laughs> As you watch those, they're up there and then the auctioneer is yelling and there's all these guys in hats yeah. and, you know, women you know, yelling. Be-de-de-de, and be-de-de-de, it was fun. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden and my dad goes like, I, I think we won it. I think we won that tractor, you know? So I'm not, I'm not downplaying. Auctions are fun. Nice. All right. Well, yeah. um, thanks to everyone who wrote in. Thanks to everyone who sent the sentences, fanfic, everyone who supports the podcast. We're going to finish the book next week. And uh, I am uh, unironically thrilled to see what's going to happen. Because if it's as batshit as any of this stuff that happened this week, um, we're in for a treat. I am equally excited. I can't believe, uh, as I told you, the first third of the book was like, I loved the 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 prose and everything. And then the second part of the book, bananas insane. <laughs> like, this is the reason... 
that Twain is sitting around slapping a knee and smoking a cigar. It's so, I can't wait for the end. But uh, thanks, Patreon people. Thanks, listeners. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. Read along on this one. It's easy. Yeah, it really is. And it's free. Um, Read along. Hide under your bed and read along. That's how I'm going to spend the next week. Yeah. All right. So long, everyone. (laughs)